Welcome to Rise Smile Films, the film review podcast that mixes cinema with fine spirits. Journey with us as we encounter new, old, and strange films with the occasional dabble into sports and music. Proceed with caution as these podcasts feature spoilers and some mature language. This is Matt. And this is Jesse. Today on tap, we have Superman, starring Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman, Christopher Reeve, Ned Beatty, and Margot Kidder. Story by Mario Puzo, based on Superman by Jerry Siegel and Joe Schuster. Screenplay by Mario Puzo, David Newman, Leslie Newman, Robert Benton, all of whom did not write the screenplay of the film that we saw today. Yeah. Uh, and directed by Mr. Richard Donner. Welcome back to Rise Smile Films. It's time to start a brand new film review cast uh, back in the in the land of superheroes. And kind of calling this superhero grab bag, I kind of you know teed it up for you and for myself to just pick whatever one you want to talk about. And then we'll smack Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3 right in the middle there. But I kind of wanted to talk about the the OG, the original, the film that paved the way for this entire genre, right? Yeah. And that's Superman from 1978. Uh, I kind of think this is a conversation that could spiral uh, into a two-hour episode, which is going to be awesome, right? Yeah. Um, so I was like, gosh, where do you start talking about this very important film? And what better way than do you remember the first time you saw it? Mm, no. Um, I know that my mom and my dad had seen it prior to my viewing. 79, so I'm six. Yeah. Um, I think they were a little bit hesitant to take me, not because there's anything I think that was salacious or even seen as salacious back then. I think it was a matter of the movie's really long, and I don't know if he's going to want to sit through it. I will say this. So I don't remember in the theater, but I do remember when we had HBO and this was in heavy, heavy rotation mm-hmm. um, every morning at eight o'clock and then every afternoon at like two to three thirty. Yeah. So I watched it a ton, mm-hmm. probably seen this movie 50, 60 times. Mm, wow. It was on every day. Uh, and, you know, when we paid that much, as my dad said for HBO back in those days, by God, we were going to use it. Yeah. And, then, and so, you yeah. know, like in the summer, if it was, you know, MTV or HBO, that's mm-hmm. how my summers were spent. So that's not pr- bad. Pretty good, right? Yeah. <laughs> Me and Chris Marie spent a lot of time together. There you go. There you go. Well, 50, 60, that's it's a decent number, right? No, you know, that's really not, I mean, it's been decade plus since I've seen it again prior to this viewing. Sure. But through my late aughts to my mid-teens, I've seen a I lot have, of watching this. I have a lot of HBO movies like that. Anaconda's up there yeah. for me. Uh, One Fine Day. Oh, uh, there's a weird comedy with David Spade and Sophie Marceau called Lost and Found where he like steals her dog uh, and like tries to court her while he's looking for the dog. Like, Sophie Marceau. I saw that movie a lot on HBO. Wow. Random weird movies, right? You know that, the one that's like that for me? Mm. Dabney Coleman in Cloak and Dagger. Oh, wow. That Henry, was on Henry all, Thomas. And Henry Thomas. That yeah. was on all the time. It's funny how those ones just like really stick out, right? Yeah. Uh, much like you, I think, honestly, I think I've seen the second film more. Because, uh, again, the HBO thing, that film I remember being on a lot. Yeah. Um, so definitely I think I've seen the sequel more than this one. And it wasn't until college when I got this like really great tin box set of the first four films, Superman Returns, and just a whole bevy of special features. And that's when I really came to appreciate this film and its style, its direction, the scale and scope of this thing. Like it felt like an epic movie from like the sixties, right? Like a David lean epic, but it was Superman. Mm -hmm. 
and just kind of getting into the nitty gritty. And I have a bevy. Well, <laughs> like you did some work, my friend. I have a lot of notes here because I wanted to do Superman right. Yeah. But I, I found a greater appreciation for this film, you know, much, much later. So I can't wait to talk about it. You know, as the grandfather of superhero films, mm-hmm. large cinematic superhero release films, we could talk about, you know, Fantastic Four and smaller ones, but big ones. There is so many things that DC and Richard Donner at this time got right that we have crucified latter age DC, DC on mm-hmm. that had they just taken a step back mm-hmm. and just watched this film, mm-hmm. we could have done away with a lot of the biggest sins that DC makes, which isn't even continuity or multiple directors, but tone. Yeah. Because, well, we'll get to it later, but it really stuck out to me this time the variations in tone in this film. And possibly characters we might care about too. <laughs> what a novel idea. Uh, yeah, we'll talk about the betrayal of Superman and how it can just differ from actor to actors that mm. tend to have charisma and maybe lack thereof, right? <laughs> uh, <laughs> We're not talking to you, Brandon Routh. You're fine. Yeah. Uh, but... You know, settle in, pour a drink. Uh, we're pouring a new drink this week. This is Redwood Empire. This is uh, from you, Matt. Uh, Emerald Giant Rye Whiskey. This is from Sonoma County, California. Yeah. Zodiac County uh, Whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> it's definitely got that rye feel to it. Yeah. It's got that rye color to it, but uh-huh. not, not not too harsh. There's a big uh, painting or a picture of uh, John Muir here, the the discoverer of the Endor moon, right? Yep. The <laughs> Emerald Giant himself. Yeah. Yeah, nice. Good bottle. Yeah. Excellent, excellent. Well, let's dive right into our flight question. best yes (laughs) yeah close to Uh, imperial march no close to the empire strikes back soundtrack i think pretty close to et this is hands down his best soundtrack i will make the case in the argument throughout the episode there's some really great instances of music in this film but can you imagine coming the year off of star wars and you already blew the, the the pants off of like the music soundtrack world there and then you follow up with this do you wonder if when these guys sit down to compose this they say to themselves do we want soaring brass or do we want subtle strings or because i mean that's what sells it is the bump the soaring brass in this right and do they say is superman a brass guy or a string guy sure and if superman's a a brass guy then is batman a string guy yeah yeah, the sweeping Danny Elfman strings they're both they're a bit of a, a little bit of both uh to some extent and it depends on when they use it I think John Williams might be really good at watching and reading a film because, you know, when it comes time to sit down and do the music, they usually show him some dailies, some early cuts of the film. And I think he just sees these, these scenes and then knows how they relate in the script and just kind of knows what that should be. I feel like his music matches the beats insofar as the conflict escalating as the beat should in a story. And if you don't know what the hell I'm talking about, beats go back to Ghostbusters five years ago. (laughs) Go back to Ghostbusters. 
Ghostbusters. Yeah, great app. <laughs> um, no, and I think, you know, maybe sometimes Spielberg might say, John, here I might want a little bit of this, but I don't think it, John Williams is the type of guy you got to give a lot of direction to. I think he just comes back with this product and it's like, it makes sense, right? Yeah. Where it's fit in and we'll talk about the Superman march coming up here. It's good. But let's start with the flight question. You know, 1978, this is about nearly 40 years from the creation of Superman. So he's been around for a while, 30-ish, 30-ish, 40 years, 35 years. And, you know, had they got this project off the ground and maybe if they had taken the comic medium a little more seriously in the golden age of Hollywood, it was still kind of just novelty, right? Um, Wondering what that might look like. So it's kind of a fantasy draft. You get to cast a Superman, a Lois Lane, and a Lex Luthor in the golden age of Hollywood, let's say 40 to like 54. Love it. Yeah. Where are you going to go first? Which going to do Lane first? Uh, yeah, that, I think that sounds good. And just kind of to preface, they did make like some low budget uh, serial cliffhangers with Superman. They made two of them. Uh, one was just called Superman. The other one was called Adam Man versus Superman. <laughs> so he did make it to the screen, but just kind of in a in a pretty low budget way. Not like not like this film. Yeah, Lois Lane. I hope we don't have the same ones on these. But I'm going with Miss Elizabeth Taylor. Um. I kind of want the traditional depictions of what they should look like. I don't want surfboards, so not blonde. I want this to be uh, very brunette, heavy, where we need to have hair and where we don't need to have hair. I guess it doesn't matter. Yeah. But I think Liz Taylor has the ability to play inquisitive and, well, obviously attractive, but firm Mm -hmm. really really well yeah so this is probably not early like 18 years old 19 years old but by the time we get to and i know i'm stretching a little bit here by using cleopatra as an example because that's technically in the 60s and you gave me to 54 but i think we do have examples as she grows up a little bit place in the sun elizabeth taylor yeah i think that version of elizabeth taylor could really work as lois lane well awesome plus i just like liz taylor yeah yeah, kind of spunky, a little, a little edgy with you know, kind of how she pushes pushes on people a little That's bit. A perfect word, spunky. Yeah, uh, I'm going, and you know what? We're not even redying the hair because the hair is too important to this actress. I'm going Veronica Lake as That's good. Lois Lane. I should have known. Yeah, and you know, talk about someone who's capable of holding her own against you know her leading men as as well. You know, you know, uh, Joel McRae and Sullivan's Travels and Alan Ladd and uh, dozens of film noirs. But she made a film that was pretty interesting that I watched recently called I Married a Witch, where she's mm. kind of like this like witch character. Uh, it was pretty good, kind of like a dark comedy. Um, was it, that the setup for Bewitched? Was that what's inspired Bewitched? Maybe it inspired. I don't know. It's, I don't think it's It's not supposed to be Bewitched. But you can see the similarities, though. Absolutely, yeah. Interesting. She was great in it. Um, but yeah, that kind of attitude, that just kind of screen presence that she has, I think would be perfect for Lois Lane. And we ain't, we're not, she doesn't need to be brunette. She's going to keep her hair. <laughs> Love that. Good, good choice. Those are two good starts. Yeah. Or you want to go next? Lex, uh, or you want to go super? Let's do Luther. Lex Luther for me, Mr. Kirk Douglas. Uh, I think that really square chin that gave him the chops to be Spartacus plays really, really well as Luther because I think for the broad shoulders that Superman has and presents, the square jaw creates a cerebral version of anti-villain that's going to match with Superman what he can't compare physically, so he intellectually goes there. Yeah, 
this is the Kirk Douglas that's cool and calculated that we see in uh, dealings with Robert Mitchum in um, that <laughs> that film noir that I can't. Uh, I'll get to in a minute. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think that's what I want to see. Kirk what Douglas. the hell film noir is that? That's escaped my mind right now. I'm not even having any more than one sip on this. <laughs> there you go. Right, you It'll can look. You can look it up on the in between here. Uh, my Luther. I think this is where you could put in your obligatory uh, Orson Welles casting here. You'd probably make a pretty good Luther. Uh, I don't know how the film's going to turn out. You know, if he wants to make it too, it could be just like a crazy disaster of a production. But I'm going to go with line out of the past. Jesus Christ. Oh, there you go. Yeah. I'm going to go with Lionel Barrymore, Mr. Potter himself as Lex Luthor. <laughs> just, dude, I just want just a son of a bitch playing this character. Yeah. But who's going to, like you said, fight Superman with his mind, not his body. Uh, and just kind of this, his stern stature that, that that guy carries, especially in the role of Mr. Potter, but in a few other roles as well. I th- I'd like to see that. Bald yeah. that guy and, yeah, give him a, a penthouse apartment or a subway apartment. And, yeah, I think he could some, uh, create some havoc for Mr. Superman. Good choice. Thank you. Orson Welles would be interesting. If you couldn't have Orson Welles... I have an honorable mention here as well. As a Luther. We're, okay, so maybe we'll get to that in yeah. a minute. Um, I have an honorable mention too with mm-hmm. your guy, as a matter of fact. Mm. Like the casting of Lex. All like right. The big Blue himself. Yes, let's do it. My Big Blue is set up with the belief that even in 1950-whatever, it was possible to take leading man in the gym and bulk him up prior to shooting. Mm -hmm. Uh, Probably not to the same extent we see today, but that had to have been a thing. Yeah. And if you can give me a slightly more brawny version of Gregory Peck that I'm all in, I want Gregory Peck. Cool, calculated, that tone works, his um, pantameter really works. And I think he plays nicely with the cast that I have in those other two Mm -hmm. aesthetically. So I want Gregory Peck. Sans, I mean, and doesn't he just sort of look like Clark Kent anyway? He's got kind of a Christopher, even him, kind of have uh, some similar uh, like traits, right? I wonder if he modeled himself after him a little bit. Possibly. Mm-hmm. They, there was an inspiration for Mr. Reeve here. Uh, I'll mention it once we get to talking about him, but you're you're going to really like it. Mm. Uh, great choice. Thanks. Uh, mine, I kind of said his name a little bit earlier because, you know, they have a lot of really great chemistry. He is a leading man material, but wasn't quite the leading man, like, uh, like in a way that we know, like Grant and Bogart and all those guys. Claude Rains made this list? <laughs> no. <laughs> hey, Claude Rains is Perry White. Sign me up. Oh, yeah. Uh, That's good. Alan Ladd. Yeah. Uh, yeah. If you don't know Alan Ladd, look him up. He looks just like square jawed, like actor guy, but you know, didn't have like the the weird kind of like kind of handsome, like but not really Jimmy Stewart, and then like the too handsome Cary Grant. Mm-hmm. He's kind of somewhere in the middle, but great actor. Spent a lot of time in film noir, a lot of time opposite Veronica Lake. Uh, mm-hmm. So they that Lois Lane Superman chemistry would be really good. But I, I could buy him. I mean, he's he's got the look in it. I don't think it'd be off-putting in a way where if, like, in 78, like I'm about to talk about, they put Robert Redford in the Superman suit. That's just going to look weird, right? Yes. It kind of has to have be a guy kind of off the beaten path a little bit. That's a good one. Yeah. Uh, can I give you one honorable mention for Superman that I thought about for a brief moment? Ray yeah. Milland. Oh, okay. That's a bit of a... Tr- that might be a better Superman 3 version. That a hard-drinking Superman? <laughs> yeah. That might be a Superman 3. There you go. But, uh, no, I think Ray Milland... Could have pulled that off. I really do see him as an excellent Clark. The tough thing is the transition from Clark to Big Blue. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I thought about that. Do you have an honorable mention for Superman? Then we'll do other honorable mentions. Um, 
Not for Superman. I, I do for Lois and, and Lex, though. Fire away. Uh, for Lois, Ava got our gardener uh, popped into my head. I mean, yeah, she just they probably modeled like some of the comic panels off of her specifically. Yeah. Uh, and then for Lex, I don't know. I just kept uh, coming around to James Cagney. Oh, yeah. And just kind of intense spitfire Lex Luthor. Uh, that could be kind of fun. Yeah, that could be fun. Yeah. I've got Jimmy Olsen for you. Okay. It's your guy. Another Jimmy. Yeah. Stewart. Stewart. Jimmy Stewart as Jimmy Olsen could be great. Oh, you know, a few years later, if we're getting into like the later 50s, a Sal Mineo would have been a good Jimmy Stewart. No, he would have been a good Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, or Jim, Jimmy Olsen, you mean? Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah uh, not Jimmy Stewart. Yeah. Sal Mineo. Yeah. yeah. Plato himself. Okay. Well, if we're going to do that and you want to go down the rebel road, can you see Mr. James Dean as no. Lex? No. We're getting into Paul Newman territory, right? Where it's getting a little too... Method. Not a too method, but just too recognizable. Okay. It's a fun cast. Mm-hmm. Yeah. To, you got a director? Uh, oh, I jokingly said Orson Welles, but this film might not ever see the light of day. Oh my God, yeah. Yeah. I'll go Howard Hawks. Yeah, uh, that this seems like a Hawks like Doesn't production, it? right? Yeah. Big, grand. Excellent. Well, to your list. To your list. Those are fun to do. Like, take like a... A property or an idea, put it in a decade it doesn't belong, and who could kind of pick up the pieces, right? Yeah. Well, we have a ton to talk about here, uh, so let's go ahead and dive right into our review breakdown of Superman. You will travel far, my little Kalo. But we will never leave you, even in the face of our death. The richness of our lives will be yours all that I have all that I've learned everything I feel all this and more I I bequeath you my son you will carry me inside you all the days of your life you will make my strength your own see my life through your eyes as your life will be seen through mine. The son becomes the father, and the father the the son. This is all I... all I can send you. Kalel. Even though Marlon Brando's reading lines off of the baby's diaper, he kind of kills. <laughs> God, lazy. So lazy. So lazy. He's in the movie for seven minutes. Yeah, and just refused. We'll get to him, but I'm not learning my lines. Write them on this baby's diaper, and I'll, I'll just, we won't rehearse. I'm just going to do it, dick. <laughs> well, it gives you reason to look down at your son like in an adoring fashion, because that's where your lines are. Yeah. Line, goddamn it, Kellel. Line, yeah, roll yeah, over, yeah. line. <laughs> roll over. <laughs> Look, very powerful lines being spoken there, right? Yeah. Uh, we'll, we'll get to them in a second. Let's talk about the beginning of the film. This could not start uh, more perfect for myself. The old Warner Brothers Saul Bass logo uh, in memoriam of Jeffrey Unsworth, who is the cinematographer on this film, who kills it, by the way. Mm-hmm. And then we get into this weird, almost like stage where the screen draws, like, you know, pulls back. Like we're in an old timey theater and it's kind of like a, a full screen setup. This person comes on talking about action comics and the origin of Superman. 
And that kind of dream fades into like a shot of the Daily Planet, which sends us to space. But I like that it does this like full screen because this was like Superman was on the TV, guys. Uh, this is big screen Superman. So when they expand that aspect ratio into space and Williams music comes in, buckle in because yeah, we're, we're about to we're about to get to it. Right. OK, I want to ask you a question. We don't often talk about the credit roll to start the film. Yeah. Is it too long? Because I timed it. It's, <laughs> it's three a, and a half minutes long. I thought it might have been five minutes, but... Oh, no, it's it's six minutes till we actually go from the, the narrative that you talked about to actual like, sure. footage. To actual... The Damn, Jesse, that's a, I get it. It's his music. I and have, yeah. Shoo, shoo. yeah. It's long. I like, I like What I like about it is it feels old school. Like, this feels like kind of like a film from, like, the 40s where we're just got, like, this, like, overture before we even can get to the story, right? Yeah. And settle in for tone, and it's bombastic, it's big. I'll never forget these letters swooshing across the screen, right? Mm -hmm. And the way they come in, too. I mean, it's Marlon Brando first, Gene Hackman second in Superman, and then we get to Christopher Reeve's style. He's third building this thing. Teaching Christopher Reeve and Margot Kidder. Yeah. Uh, yeah, I'm with you. I, I, I've always kind of thought that when I show this to people. It's just like, this is a, this is like a James Bond-level credit sequence. Mm. Um Mm. But it does give Williams a chance to show off. It shows where the space and the, the majesty, and I think the scope of what this is going to be. This isn't George Reeves, you know, jumping through a window and flying, you know, in like one dimensional yeah. footage. Uh, this is going to be something else altogether. Okay. Yeah. It's, uh, it's grand. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> it's indulgent for sure. Yeah. <laughs> but yet it's that Superman march. And don't you kind of like it too? Yes. Like I love the music. When, uh, they go dun da dun da da I mean, it may as well just be saying Superman. Ba, 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 ba. Like it says the words like Are you ready? Yeah. This is going to be great. <laughs> yeah, something like that. Yeah. Buckle up. Yeah. It's Superman. Yeah, no, it's perfect. And I've always that way. Yeah, yeah. I've always wanted to have this conversation with someone, especially about John Williams music. Oh. Because you know, you look at Jaws and Jaws has the, you know, the shark melody. Ooh, ooh, ooh. Yep. Uh, you have Star Wars, which you just get blasted with text in that film, right? And you get the theme. Even uh, Raiders, Indies theme and Raiders to, to some extent, just those themes. What's really good about them, and I think more reason for people to buy into those themes easier, is that those are spec ideas. I mean, there's no preconceived notion, I think, of what Star Wars is supposed to sound like yeah. until I see it. 35, 40 years of history, I kind of have a idea of what maybe Superman's music should sound like. And it's, it somehow is this, right? Yes. I can't explain it. It's just Williams understood the assignment. And I think there's more writing on this score than the others, because there is a preconceived notion on what this should be. And he kills it. You're taking on a really, really ambitious entity here. Yeah. If you want to play, you know, the writers back to, you know, the immigration story that they told and the reason why Superman is bulletproof having to do with, you know, an assassination in, in dad's shop, which spawned, I need a man to protect. Like there is plenty of history for Siegel and Schuster that after multiple cartoons, a few B-list attempts, plenty of episodic television with George Reeves and other various players, the common occurrence of Superman in product placement, when John Williams sits down, and then Richard Donner is saying, no, no, we're making 
an epic here. Yeah. This is not just a 90-minute film. We're gonna and we're gonna start with you, John. We're not even showing the other actors. Mm-hmm. Like, this is your time to shine. <laughs> John Williams, to his credit, keeps that from being an absolute bore fest. Because if it's just spiraling into a black hole like fade effect dissolve if you will um, pov i think a lot of people might have been looking around like good luck get let's go but the music does help and he's able to capture the magnitude of the character that's being delivered in a big way to the american public for the first time and even larger the music that goes with it yeah it's it, like the importance of score yeah in action superhero you know what's kind of cool about it too is he kind of summarizes the whole film for you in three and a half minutes Mm -hmm. whatever you time because it's the superman march and then he plays a little bit of the smallville theme a little bit more of the superman theme the lois uh and superman love theme and then we end with the grand finale in a way that's kind of what happens in the film those are the places we visit in that order so yeah he kind of it's like just like a quick splash pad of this is what the music's going to be about in this thing Mm -hmm. It's a great opening here. Yeah. Uh, and then we come right into the next theme, which is, you know, the planet Krypton. Uh, and, you know, we really settle in. What do you think? You know, I, I, I haven't read a lot of Superman comics. I'll be completely honest with you. I think my, you know, origins and knowledge actually probably comes from a lot of these films, mm-hmm. right? So I don't know what Krypton's really supposed to look like. I don't think it's supposed to look like Avatar Land like it does in the Zack Snyder Man of Steel. But I buy this crystal-looking planet. <laughs> it's just very too. odd, and like it, it feels so 70s science fiction, right? And cold. Yeah. Whether it's crystals or glass, which is going to come into, I think, what's a fantastic opening, Yeah. which is the imprisonment of Zod and his two cohorts mm-hmm. and the mirror dimension as it spins off into space. What a horrible way to be imprisoned. Yeah. There's something very particular and cold, which also goes into the Ice Fortress later on in the film, Fortress of Solitude, about Krypton. Mm-hmm. And it also plays into this heat that is boiling underneath the surface of the planet that's going to destroy it. If it's naturally cold and it feels cold, mm-hmm. and even the dialogue between the characters, whether that's the faces that serve as the jury as Zod is being tried, if you want to call it being tried, mm-hmm. There's not a lot of personal interplay between the Kryptonians except for Brando, his wife, and baby Kal-El. They're the only, might I say, life or light yeah. that's sort of pulsing in this film that doesn't seem so driven by science and cold. There's a lot of ways you could imprison somebody. Mm-hmm. But as Zod... And Ursa, and then whatever the brute guy is called. Nom. Nom, <laughs> thank you. Are read the adjudication and... Nom's a mo- mindless aberration. Mm. <laughs> yeah, mm. exactly. And Jor-El gets the final guilty, even though he never really says it. Um, man, you get the idea that maybe things are stacked against those forces that oppose Krypton. And as we continue on, lo and behold, that is the case. Because yeah. if they would just listen, yeah. maybe some of Krypton could be saved. Yeah. But yeah, no. Don't you like how they get in like really late with that court case? I like, love it. Like, I love it. We just get in. We're just like, oh my God, like 
these three are arrested that like he was trying to like stage like some sort of uprising. Mm-hmm. He's trying to like kind of go Jorel into come join our rebellion. Come, Jor-El. come over to our side. Yeah. Uh, and the, the zoom screens that I think Whedon kind of ripped off a little bit in the first Avengers film. Do you remember the panels of yeah. all the leaders talking? Mm-hmm. It's kind of like this. Yes. Instead of just like these like cold frozen heads. I really like this opening, and then, you know, we really set up Zod really well, and maybe not even knowing he's coming, right? That this is something that isn't finished with yet. Uh, goes into this whole speech about, like, well, if you don't do this, you know what? You know, I'm going to make everyone pay for what you're about to do to me. One day, you, and if not, your heirs. Kneel before Zod. It's kind of a chilling line, right? Yeah. Terran Stamp's really good. Um but yeah, and then so they they get whisked off in the picture frame, and off to the Phantom Zone they go, mm-hmm. stuck in this mirror. I'm so I'm shocked that in the Snyder verse of films that they never even once tried to do some sort of a Phantom Zone. Maybe Man of Steel had a little bit of that with the Zod breaking out, but I'm shocked we never went there. <laughs> yeah, I'm too. Yeah, uh, but yeah. Then we get that little that little line there. Well, first of all, the the, the alluded a little bit to what you were talking about, which was the planet is on a course with destruction. The sun's heating up. It's just going to eat up Krypton. Like you, none of you want to listen to me. And so what can we do? We got to save our son, right? We just had him and we get that, this really great scene here where, you know, he's saying goodbye to his son. He bestows all his power within all these crystals, all his knowledge of everything he is. You know, the wife doesn't want to send him away. He'll be such a weirdo on earth. He'll be rejected. And he's like, how could he be? Like, he's going to be more powerful than anything on that planet. Mm-hmm. But we joked about Marlon Brando's lack thereof, preparation, laziness, showing up unprepared, refusing to learn lines. But when he says that kind of creed to to his son, what do, what do you think about that? I think you see how intelligent Jor-El is. And I think part of that intelligence is him knowing what the path he's setting forth for his son would be. It's Christ-like, right? It is Mm -hmm. literally Jesus in the river down the bassinet, so to escape. Oh, that's Moses. I mean, Moses, yeah. He becomes Christ later. (laughs) You know what I mean, though? It's it's that. Mm -hmm. Um, Get this last refuge from this dying land that is extremely important out of here. Mm -hmm. So once you hearken back to a fictitious story based on something that has that kind of magnitude, you have to have somebody that can deliver something like bigger than good luck, son, and may the fates smile upon you or some horse shit like that. Yeah. He's got to give him something, the send off yeah. that is regal mm-hmm. because he's sending off essentially a prince mm-hmm. and he's sending off a prince to a place where It's not just going to be prince by title or legacy. It's going to be infinite power by legacy and science. That's what I think is cool about this. Mm -hmm. Jarrell is obviously intelligent as this councilman or prime minister or whatever position of power he holds in the federal government there. Some senator. (laughs) Something, right? Yeah, yeah. But he also holds this important spot in, I'm able to see through this science. Mm -hmm. And I know what it's going to be like when the rays of the red sun or yellow sun hit our boy what he's going up to be. So I'm going to send him to measly earth Mm -hmm. because I think he can do some good there. How wise and intelligent is Jor-El? He's done his research. Indeed. Yeah. 
there's something really powerful about saying the son becomes the father and the father becomes the son. Like that's pretty heavy, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and you know, when we did the Godfather episode, we talked a lot about Brando and you know just how really good he is in that film. And then just just like who he is as like a person and his personality is just it's so method, right? And unprepared and you know, denying Academy Awards. I mean, the guy's a character. So when he shows up to this film, refuses to learn his stuff, but then is able to do that in the audio that I played, uh, yeah, I might let you read some cue cards, Marlon Brando, if that's what you're going to give me. It's it's very good acting here right off the bat. And this is what all these people wanted, right? Mm-hmm. The yeah. Salkinds, Richard Donner was like, this is what we, when we hired that name, that's what we want him to give. And I think he gives it. Yeah. So off Kalel goes in his little crystal ship uh, on his journey to Earth. And boy, does Krypton bite it big time, right? This gets to tone. Yeah. Let's talk about that for just a okay. minute. Okay, okay. My contention is DC's biggest problem, other than continuity issues and maybe some poor casting choices, and being too Batman heavy in order for everything to work, is the tone at which everything is presented. Everything in the Snyderverse and around that period, and we'll see about the Flash coming up here soon, but I, I think it's probably going to go the same way, is so heavy and very, very morose. And serious, right? There's no, yes. We're taking it so serious. Look, this is a really serious beginning too. Yeah. This, ca- this, this planet, it blows up 15 times before it finally blows up. Everything in the... It's coming down around it. They're getting crushed by glass and crystals. Glass and yeah. crystals and caverns and, and ah, people falling their, off their fluorescent jumpsuits. Yeah, <laughs> with their strange symbols on their on their emblazoned on their chest. Mm-hmm. It's a rough beginning, and then with that, knowing you sent off your son, who is an infant, to God only knows where, and there's no protection until he gets there. Yeah, he's just adrift in space. Mm-hmm. How do you go from an opening that that's heavy and not continue? Well, in 2015 till now with Warner Brothers and DC, you say you just double down on it. You just go heavier and heavier and heavier and turn it into this grim fest. Yeah. (laughs) What Richard Donner's able to do is like, we've got to walk this back so that people still enjoy what's happening. And you know what? You know who started that was Nolan, but then they didn't know why he was doing that in the first place. They, They took the wrong lessons away from what made tone in those films work so well, right? Like dark realism, like it fit what he made. Batman, it fits Batman. Yeah. It doesn't fit everyone. Yeah. Especially Man of Steel, right? And Man of Steel right. is a particularly drab and lifeless and just kind of joyless film. Mm-hmm. I'm going to bring it up a lot because there's a lot of instances where like this film does the exact opposite of what that movie does. And that's this is why this one, it works in there. I think Richard Donner recognizes there's families that are going to want to see this movie. Oh, and yeah. we can't make destroying an entire planet and having millions of loss of lives couple, coupled with, come on, Matt, coupled with this kid's mirror... <laughs> Miserable existence on earth. We have to take something on earth and make it very light, might I dare say humorous. Mm -hmm. And we've got to break this tone. Like it's a mastership, masterclass in tragedy and humor. Yeah. Well, the smiley masks, right? The masks with the, (laughs) and the frowny one. This is important, right? Because all superheroes that matter, Mm -hmm are birthed from terrible, terrible, tragic events in their origin story. Yeah. Uh, from Peter Quill to Superman. Mm-hmm. 
your whole entire planet has just destroyed. You don't even know it because you're too stupid as an infant to recognize that you're not even with anybody. And then the rest of your life, you are given this curse of representing the best of Krypton with a bunch of randos and a population that don't even really know who you are. And secondarily, you can't reveal who your real self is to them. Mm -hmm. That sounds awful. Yeah. (laughs) There's not a lot of joy there. As most superheroes are birthed from awful. Mm -hmm. I didn't stop this robber. My uncle's dead. He raised me. Um, My life sucks. And I'm going to web everyone for the next 75 years trying to overcome this. I just need a good therapist. Yeah. They all do. (laughs) Because that's... Or it's, possibility. it's too grim where you're like, you're checking out, right? You're like, it's just like, it's it's going too far the other way, right? Yeah. Uh, do you think Sam Raimi took some lessons from this film when he did that first Spider-Man? Because I think he balances tone expertly well in that film as well. Sure. The the tragedy of, you know, Ben's death, and but the grandeur of superhero-ness, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And it's funny. It's a funny movie too, right? Yeah, so, yes, yes. Go, Web, go. <laughs> it's just like, I think, I think he under, these guys understood it and- you know, when Tim Burton's going to do Batman, I mean, Batman's kind of the exact kind of opposite. There's a lot less joy and humor there outside of Adam West. So you get a guy that's kind of known for getting a little weird and dark with it. I'm kind of a, a good decision at, at that point. And we did that film years ago. Well, if Batman's forces of the night yeah. and Superman is the flag flying, the American flag flying, he literally is red, white, yellow, mm-hmm. blue, Truth, justice, and all of those things, those are two really different tonally driven characterizations that we want to see. Batman does his best work in the forces of the night. Yeah. Superman's powered by the sun. Yeah. You have to recognize that difference. And I think getting to this this point, finally, is <laughs> I wonder if I'm looking at the time. Wondering if the people that DC has brought in to run their flagship franchises had any prior knowledge of this film to the character or this film, but <laughs> yeah. to the characters that they were going to show on the silver screen. They should. They probably should have popped sat this, down and read. Yeah, and popped this on too. Of like, yeah, maybe this is more what it should be like. Right. Oh, that's interesting. Well, the, speaking of you know America and Americana, he kind of needs to land where he lands, right? Mm-hmm. Right in smack dab in the middle of the United States of America in Smallville, Kansas, the Bible Belt, right? Mm-hmm. To be raised by uh, Ma and Pa Kent, uh, Jonathan and Martha. Martha. <laughs> Martha. How weird isn't that? Bruce's mom's yeah. name. Huh, maybe there's something there. And they find this kid. He's naked as the light of day. <laughs> and they're just like, oh, my God, a child. Like, this. Uh, Martha sees it as this blessing because they were ne- never able to sire children. We'll take it in. How are we going to explain that, Martha? Oh, it's just my my cousin's child or what, whatever. And Glenn Ford's really good in here in, like, two scenes mm-hmm. <laughs> that he's in. And says, uh, you know, we can't do that. Think of the life. What, what are they going to do? And they're going to persecute this the, this kid. And this car almost falls on top of him, right? He's changing a flat tire because they almost wrecked from when the, the his ship was crashing. And this is where they see, oh, my God, this kid's holding up the truck. And they're just like, they kind of do a double take with the ship and then him. And like, boy, he'd sure be useful on the farm. Yeah. Dealing with something maybe that's kind of never been seen before, right? Yeah. yeah. And I think become, and we see very little of it. And I think that's a credit to the acting and uh, efficient storytelling is... 
I think we kind of get Clark's upbringing without having to see all of it and all these flashbacks and all these scenes of it, right? I we, love that. We literally cut to him in like his senior year of high school. Waterboy. And he's the, an equipment boy, right? Mm-hmm. And we see just kind of him longing to want to play, but we kind of know that if Superman plays football, like he's going to like take a head off or something. Yeah. Uh, he, he can't do it. And, you know, he's trying to, you know, talk to girls and Lana Lang, right? Yep trying to form that relationship, but he's still just kind of like this dweeb, pick up all the stuff, wash it before I want it ready for the game. Like people are pushing him around here. Right. Mm -hmm. And boy, when he kicks this football out of rage and just like teenage angst, right. Pretty awesome. Right out of the big 12 into the pac 12. Right. I mean, he kicks that ball to the sea and you know how they did it. They stuck a, like kind of like almost like a, like a potato gun cannon in underneath the, they kind of buried it in the grass there. And so when he kicked, it's just good editing that they just shot this football out of there. Like that's cool. Like 200 miles an hour. So it looks like he's kicking it into the next state. Right. Mm -hmm. Pretty, pretty good little introduction to Clark there. And Mm -hmm. like, we don't need to see like Clark in elementary school or like in middle school. And like the first time he got like a boo boo or something, (laughs) we just get it. We're just like this kid, this it's weird. He's living the life that his Lara, 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 Al, right. Mm hmm. Warn Jorel about it. he's going to be weird and different to them. He's kind of fitting that right now, but he's celebrating it too. Mm-hmm. So showing off a bit, yeah, weird and different. Again, you can take the dark turn on that and have him be ostracized and this social weirdo and all of these things. Instead, Donner, with all of the screenwriters that took a shot at this, decided let's sew this sort of comedically. And you know how you do that? You run him next to the train and the kid sees him out the window and the kid starts to, hey, mom, look. And by the time mom looks, he's nowhere to be seen. Not just any kid. In my version of the film, this is Lois Lane. Lois Lane. Yeah. And then he has the leap across the train tracks just in the nick of time not to be crushed by this oncoming train or the train would probably bend around him. That's light and jovial and fun. Yeah. If it's fun. Something I might do, you know, if I'm a teenager and I got superpowers, I'm probably going to play beat the train every Why not? day. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I think about that all the time and I don't have those powers. <laughs> so that's a really good choice. You're showcasing his powers. You're showcasing that really sometimes tedious period in these stories where we watch superhero learn how to use his powers. That can get a little bit old, especially when we're as familiar with them as Superman is to us. And in eight to nine minutes, we're at the Daily Planet with Christopher Reeve looking like a complete dork Clark Kent. Maybe a little bit longer than that, but uh, it, you know, I mean, it's, 15, qu- maybe. it's quick, right? Yeah, it should be. What do you think of the running? Of the what? The, the running uh, effect of him by the side of the train. It almost looks like it's shot backwards. His knees are bending a little bit. He's sort of, instead of running like tall, yeah. he's running crouched forward. Yeah. Terrible posture. <laughs> He needs a track coach, or maybe sure. he doesn't. How fast he's running? What yeah. do I know? He's actually in a harness, so they're actually kind of got him on a crane, and they're kind of moving him just a little bit above the ground. Mm. So I think maybe like the harness is kind of pulling him a little forward, and that's why he's kind of hunched in a weird position. I only say because it does look a little weird. It is kind of a bit comical, and people are like, "Oh, it's kind of stupid the way he ran." Uh, I do got to applaud them for trying, though. Like, they actually were like, we're going to put a dude on here. We're going to make him look like he's running fast, right? I'll give Richard Donner credit, because if we're going to do that, and I'm not one that does that. Yeah. In 1977? That's the best they could do. Richard yeah. Donner was not some idiot that had no idea how to make people look fast on screen. Like, there were limitations to special effects. I've never been that guy. Yeah. 
Like there's the moment, the one that always used to kill me in Vertigo is Jimmy Stewart waking up in his dream and we get that spiral kaleidoscope behind him and the little flipping of his hair on oh, his forehead. I love, that. I love it too. <laughs> but people sometimes laugh at that because like, oh my God, that looks so cheesy. Okay. In 2023, it might, but I challenge this running yeah. to any of the CGI graphics that have no volume that look just as ridiculous. Yeah. Vol- so volume, it's yeah, this is light hitting light, right? An yeah. Actual thing. So I, I I applaud that. He runs a lot better than Flash in those Justice League movies. That's for sure. <laughs> <You> remember? Yes. <laughs> With the light. sparks around him and everything in slow motion. Yeah, give me this any day, but now yeah, we'll talk about the effects later. But I thought, you know, for yeah, 78, I mean, they're literally trying to figure out things for the first time ever, right? Around mm-hmm. this time. Like, how do we do that? We have to literally invent the way to do it, right? Mm-hmm. Um, it works for me. And then we get this, you know, he, 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 they're going to go listen to records at Lana's or Mary Ellen or whoever's house. He beats them there there. And instead of them being impressed with, Oh my God, how did he beat us here? They just go, what a freak, man. Can I ask you a question? Yeah. What was the runtime on? Cause I, I didn't watch it on HBO max. Like we talked about, I yeah. watched it on, um, Amazon prime, I believe. Okay. And I don't know what version I got, which is mine was like two twenty three. What was your runtime? Well, depending on which version you uh, mine's I think two twenty eight. Hmm. In case we didn't watch, because did you have the sequence of Lex's three trials before he breaks into his subway lair? No. Okay. So I had the extended version. I think that's two twenty eight, and yours is yeah two twenty three, two twenty two. So probably theatrical is what I saw. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's gonna play next week too. Cause <laughs> Well, not yeah. to, I shouldn't get ahead of myself. Scratch that. You mean we've never talked about film length before? Yeah, I know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But yeah, it's. I think this is this just kind of breezes by in terms of how much they're trying to jam pack into that 223, right? Yeah. Uh, so yeah, he beats yeah he beats them there, and then they instantly call him a freak, so it kind of has that opposite effect. And then his dad kind of calls him out a little bit on it. I didn't mean to show off, Pa. Just that guys like that Brad, I just want to tear him apart. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know I shouldn't. Yeah, I know. You can do all these amazing things, and sometimes you think that you will just go bust unless you can tell people about it. Huh? Yeah. Yeah, that's it. I mean, every time I get the football, I can make a touchdown. <laughs> that's for sure. Every time. Yeah. I mean, is it showing off and somebody's doing the things he's capable of doing? Is, no. is a bird showing off when it flies? No. No, now you listen to me. When you first came to us, we thought that people would come and take you away because when they found out, you know, the things you could do, and it worried us a lot. But then a man gets older and he thinks very differently and things get very clear. And there's one thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. I don't know whose reason, whatever the reason is, you know, maybe it's because... But I do know one thing. It's not to score touchdowns. Huh? Thanks, Dad. I race to it. Yeah. You will. Come on. Come on, Pop. Run. Come on. Come on. Move. Move. Yeah. Go. 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 Come on. Run. Hey, Ben. Oh, no. 
This is the first time I ever saw someone have a heart attack in a movie. Uh, I didn't really know what that was as a kid. Uh, this and Tommy Boy. <laughs> Brian Dennehy dies at his wedding day. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is kind of a good dad here. Giving him good advice. Uh, I guarantee you that these two were going to church every Sunday and probably... The second that he showed up, they're probably not going to church anymore because there's life beyond that now, right? Yeah. An alien that we're taking care of as their son. Mm-hmm. So I think he's probably struggled to explain exactly what you are and who you are, but I think he got it early on that if you were sent to us for by some force of divine intervention, it wasn't to show off and play sports and become famous. It was to do something beyond the veil of that. Let me pose something to you for a minute. Yeah. If one of the curses of being Superman is knowing that you are in fact super in relationship to the other humans on the planet that you'll come into contact with, Mm -hmm. you have a pretty terrific task ahead of you. Number one, that's if you choose to protect them, A, then protecting them. But B, knowing that if you go too far, that protection ends up resulting in probably death. In this particular scene... It's just a simple foot race. Mm -hmm. And maybe because Jonathan pushes himself to try to be super or match his super, Mm. what Superman gets is a terrible result upon the full reveal, dare I say full, the 10% reveal of what he's capable of. Mm -hmm. Isn't that Superman's plight the rest of his story? along with most of superheroes. Now, supervillains don't give a damn, and that's why they become villains. But in this particular moment, I think you start to set up a scenario where if Superman ever decides to finally let it go, what could happen? And then the frustration that results from it. There's frustration, right? he barely had a foot race with the man that meant the most to him in a jovial, fun way. And it led to a heart attack. Now I'm not trying to say that the actual running caused it, but look, it's presented that way in the film, maybe for Mm -hmm. speed, but that's what happens. If he does that in a jovial, loving way with his father quotes around father, but father, and that's the result at a young age, how do you go forward with these terrible (laughs) responsibilities and awesome gifts that you have to meet those responsibilities with knowing what could happen. Yeah. It's a, it's a little bit like unbreakable, right? I mean, it's, it's kind of like this curse of these powers and like, like this unfortunate glimpse it gets into it. When we did that film in episode one, we talked a lot about the second he touches his wife, he's going to know kind of everything about her, right? All the, like the men she's been with. Oh my God. If she's ever been like abused or anything, like if stuff she hasn't told him, right? You did that with who? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. And it is a bit of a curse, right? I mean, that's kind of a horrible power. I mean, horrible. I mean, look at Spider-Man too. I mean, swinging through webs. I mean, looks great, but like that kind of sucks too. I mean, his powers aren't like very glamorous. (laughs) It's just... If running for a football results in your father's death, yeah. and that's the use of power to beat him, because you know, even if you didn't use your powers, you could just beat him because you're just younger. Mm-hmm. And now you have these terrible villains, Zod coming eventually, but in this particular movie, weaponized Lex Luthor with two nuclear warheads. And you have to, in order to prevent terrible things from happening, exercise more of that power. How do you not approach that 
with the heavy knowledge of what it looked like when you were just being you with dad at 19 or 18. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a moment, and I don't know if Richard Donner did it on purpose or if he just said, we got to get this guy dead so that we can get on with it. Or was he making a point? But to me, it, it's... We got to kill this pot. can't, like, stat. Yeah. It always struck me. Can you have... Okay, so here's a common scene that we see in lots of country-driven movies between father and son. Yeah. It's the son, and I'm not taking it from the natural because it happens a lot. Yeah. It's the son pitching to dad. Yeah. In that movie, Roy Hobbs, with his lightning bolt arm, throws mm-hmm. the baseball through the chicken coop. Yeah. Can you play catch with your dad? Yeah. Because if he catches it, it's going to either rip his hand off or carry him to the next county. <laughs> How did Jonathan can end up in Arkansas? You know what I mean? Yeah. That sucks. Yeah. That sucks. Uh, you know, and it, it's a, it's so efficient, right? In in two minutes there, he gives more to his son than Kevin Costner does in that ridiculous tornado scene in Man oh, of Steel. God. Yeah. And he just, like, doesn't want his son to come get him because he's about to expose himself to the people of the world when he could, like, just come and swoop in real quickly. But it's mm-hmm. more sagely advice than whatever the hell this is, right? Yeah. And uh, I just buy it. And it, it really sucks to see this guy go down and just we just cut to a funeral and we're just like, I guess he died, right? Yeah. And I got to tell you, dude, John Williams stops on a dime. He goes from melancholy, like sagely advice uh, music to jovial sprinting to the barn music to dead. Yeah. (laughs) And then to funeral and grieving and then moving past that. And as the cemetery overlooks, you know, the uh, Smallville Valley, it's very grand. It's very majestic. It's there's models in this shot. It's pretty great. Mm -hmm. But. Much like a coming-of-age story, I mean, it's getting towards this time, and this crystal's calling to him, right? I like that it's in the middle of the night, and, like, the staticky radio, it makes it sound like a UFO or something, like invaders from Mars or something, and he's got to go out and investigate this weird, strange thing. It just, again, I don't know a lot about Superman from the comics, but I know this green crystal from this film, right? Yeah. (laughs) It's pretty cool. It is cool. And so he has to say goodbye to mom and a really great shot of him on the horizon. This is kind of comical. He's like in the wheat field. Mom wakes up with the like box of Cheerios. So America, right? Mm-hmm. And this grand majesty, a beautiful shot. And then she's like, well, I need to go talk to my son. And so she goes and talks to him. And that's like uh, dusk, like the sun rising. It's like noon by the time she gets out to him because he's so far out. And she's so old. It takes him forever. Like the sun's like midday at that point. Yeah. But he says, I got to go. And she knows it. She knows it. Yeah, she knew this day was going to come. I kind of like it. It's so simple. It's it's just so we don't have to like throw like a truck through Ma Kent's house and destroy it to know that this woman cares about her her son. Mm-hmm. It's like two scenes this lady's in, right? Right. And we get the relationship and, and where that needs to go. Again, I'm with you on the reading of Superman and a vast history of mm-hmm. his literary background through comics. I don't care about Smallville. Yeah. I care enough about it for backstory, but... We need to be ending the first act when he leaves Smallville. That has to happen. And to their credit, I think that's when we fade out and then fade back in. Mm-hmm. The opening of the second act being the the creation of your port, Fortress of Solitude. Oh, that's awesome. And what a great way to begin the second act. It's quite literally the journey that the hero's on. It is the quest, yeah. right? The mm-hmm. quest. Mm-hmm. Now, it's not going to have all of the archetypal characters that we look for. It has some of them. But, but it has quite a few, actually. Yeah, yeah. it does. Yeah. It's, it's the quest that he's on. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah, to the North Pole, to somewhere uh, desolate and, and, and solitude. And he throws this crystal in, like, some sort of, like, weird 80s toy. Like, this little thing creates this gigantic thing, right? Mm-hmm, yeah. Crystal scale models, it's awesome. Yep. I don't know what the Fortress of Solitude is supposed to look like in any other version. It's supposed to look like this. It needs to look like a crystal house. Agreed. <laughs> I don't know where you're sleeping. Well, I know where they sleep in Superman, too. He has, like, a nice, like, fur bed with silk sheets. It's a real... Su- oh, you know that's a water bed. It's a real super pad, right? Uh, but I don't know where the toilet is. I don't know where anything where they're going to have dinner. But this thing looks cool. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it just looks really good. Yeah. And he gets to meet his real dad for the first time. Speak. Who am I? My name is Kalel. You are the only survivor of the planet Krypton. Even though you've been raised as a human being, you are not one of them. You have great powers, only some of which you have as yet discovered. Come with me now, my son, as we break through the bottom of your earthly confinement, traveling through time and space. Your powers will far exceed those of mortal It is forbidden for you to interfere with human history. Rather let your leadership stir others too. In this next year, we shall examine the human heart. It is more fragile than Rome. As we pass through the flaming turmoil, which is the edge of your own galaxy, we will enter the realm of the red Krypton sun, source of your strength and nourishment and cause of our adventure. So he sees Jor-El, he's this big projection. He's like, your name's Kalel. You know, I have been dead many times over uh, compared to when you left here. Uh, but let me tell you a little bit about us. So they go on this journey through time and space and realm, or whatever that means, I don't even care, mm-hmm. uh, for 10 years, I believe. It's like a ten, like the podcast tapes, right? It's just like Jor-El side D, right? Yeah. Today we're learning anatomy and we're learning about the human heart and how it's different than yours that, you know, people die a lot easier than you ever will. And he's already, he's going, here to go sagely advice part two, right? Jor-El starts telling him, you can't, even though you probably can, you're not supposed to interfere with human history and the timeline, right? Uh, and I, I kind of like, cause that's, that's important later. Mm-hmm. Kind of like that the Superman in this film is a little, I mean, we've knocked him a, a couple pegs when talking about the character of he's so goody, goody two shoes, too perfect. He's just un- indestructible. Such a boy scout. I think they do a good job in this film of letting him act out a bit. Yeah. Uh, he flirts. He gives away information because he's trying to curry favor with a woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, he he kind of slips up a bit. He isn't all too perfect, right? Yeah. And anger and rage, and we'll save it for the very crucial scene at the end, is willing to disobey his father's first commandment, right? Right. To do the right thing. Mm-hmm. I kind of like that. I kind of like that. It's It's a more interesting Superman than other versions I've seen that are just... All true justice in the American way, right? If you go back to the father becomes a son and the son becomes the father, mm-hmm. we're talking about, and there's a lot of metaphor and, and wordplay in there, but we're talking about the ascension of kal to a position greater than his father was, right? If that occurs, again, comparing it to another superhero film, and I'll go with Black Panther, the son has to break the rules that the dad has set to be greater than dad. Yeah. 
And in the beginning of this, we like our nomenclature in film, and these are the rules that you cannot break, or these are the rules that we operate by. He gives them some. Yeah. And he's going to break the first one. <laughs> first one. Don't screw up the timeline. Yeah. And do you hear that? You can actually do time in a reasonable manner yeah. in superhero films. Yeah. We're going to get to it yeah. for sure. Yeah. But in order to prevent the destruction of his world, much the same way his father couldn't prevent the destruction of their world, yeah. you have to become greater than father. So in rising to son becoming bigger or better than father... Does that mean you have to, in a rebellious nature, spurn dad's rules? I think the answer is yes. Yeah, you're acting out against your familial ties here. I mean, I think that's a step in a more complex character than just one-dimensional Superman. Dad, you're so right, but you're wrong on this one. Yeah. I have to be be more right. I have to be more correct, Dad. You got to allow me to break this one. (laughs) You can't play guitar like that. Okay, Chuck Berry. Yeah. You know what I kind of like about it, too, is, you know, the rule. What's the rule, Matt? Is show, don't tell. Yeah. So we're doing a lot of telling, and we're really just showing, like, space flyby. Mm-hmm. But I kind of feel like I'm at the planetarium. And it, oh, it's my just gosh, like, those it's, days. It's so soothing to just close your eyes and listen to Jarrell kind of guide and lead and teach and nurture his son mm-hmm. that he's seen for the first time in a couple millennia, right? Mm-hmm. And teach him how to not only become a man, but become a superman. Mm-hmm. Kind of good. And then so... That's interesting. Wow. That's really good. And once he, once we wrap up with that, we get Christopher Reeve off in in the far distance and the guy flies across the screen. Like, we're ready to go, right? Yeah. It's a great introduction to... When you see him make the suit... Who cares? Where is it? Where it's coming from or see him struggle with flying and all these ridiculous things. Just have him fly and let's just get get on with it. And we go to Metropolis, right? Mm Mm-hmm. Again, the efficiency of just, you know, it's a long movie, but, like, we're, we're checking a lot of boxes here in a very quick amount of time. Uh, would Donner set out to make this? Did he set out to make this with the intent of doing one and two together? Or was Zod thrown away? Or was, on thro- was Zod in that bit thrown in just in case? Okay, we need to do this now. We need to do yeah, we have to. the road to this film and then where it got to, and then I'll kind of tease your question a little bit later. Yeah. Uh, so... Ilya and Alexander Salkind, the producers of this film, are these like real like French, you know, crackpots. Yeah, in, they're interesting. Uh, I think they understood the character. I think they understood as businessmen the potential of what a Superman film could do. Uh, you know, at the movies, I mean, it could be a huge hit, right? Mm-hmm. They were notorious though at like they would always like stiff like the their like directors and writers and you know actors like they would never get paid. It was always kind of like a shit show. And so it was kind of hard to get like their films done, but they 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 came for money. They had money. That wasn't their issue. They were just they were crooks, kind of, kind of bad businessmen and crooks, right? Yeah. So they set their sights on Superman in '73. They at that point, you know, Warner Brothers doesn't own DC like it does today. So they had to go to DC Comics and said, "Hey, we want to make a film. What's it going to cost?" I don't know, a couple million uh, back then, and. Uh, uh, they set out to, to to make this film. Now, they did have to give DC a listing of actors that they would consider just, you know, as like a measure of good faith. And this is what they gave them. Muhammad Ali, Al Pacino, James Caan, Steve McQueen, Clint Eastwood, and Dustin Hoffman. Anybody in there, maybe? Maybe uh, Eastwood, maybe? I think this is just like a list to like make DC happy, but it kind of shows you how out of tune they are with the character, right? right? I can't see any. Maybe Steve McQueen. Dustin Hoffman? No way. No way. Uh, 
Pacino, uh, mm. I don't even think Muhammad Ali ever acted in a movie outside of a documentary. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so they're just, okay, so we're going to make the film. What are we going to do? How are we going to fund it? So they did a negative pickup deal. Mm. And kind of what that is, is you go into a negotiation with the studio and the studio agrees to pay you a, a certain amount or maybe the full total of what it costs to make the film. The studio gets to distribute across the globe, however they see fit, and uh, then they, they pay you back. It's almost like a loan. Uh, so what the Salkinds have to do is they have to budget the movie themselves. Uh, it's coming out of their pocket, and they're kind of in charge of the production, and then Warner Brothers takes over from there. Uh, kind of, it's George Lucas did that with The Empire Strikes Back. He kind of had such a crummy time working with Fox for the first one. He was like, well, I have money now. I'll just do it myself. And it was really stressful, right? Yeah. Because what if the movie's a bomb? I mean, you're just out, out. so much money. So mm-hmm. that's why, you know, you know the salt kinds have bank here. Uh, let's see here. So, okay, let's get a name. Let's get a big name. What's big in early 70s? The Godfather. Let's get Mario Puzo to write this script for us. Mm. Uh, they paid him $600,000 in 1974. It's kind of a lot of money for... Big spec. A screenplay that we, we don't even know if we're going to make it, right? Yeah. Uh, so they brought in all those other uh, writers I mentioned to help come uh, and kind of polish it up, you know, figure it out. He turned in a 400-page script, and that was for two films. Yeah. But for that's a lot for two movies, right? Yeah. That's like... Three th- hours long. Three, that, 320, two, three... That's six... That's almost seven hours of film. It's almost four movies. Yeah. That's a lot, right? So, <laughs> okay, so Puzo's writing the script. Oh, that, 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 everyone's getting a little excited. Um some names, directors, Francis Ford Coppola, William Friedkin, Richard Lester, who would direct part two and uh, number three, Peter Yates, uh, George Lucas turned down because he was in the middle of Star Wars. Spielberg was considered, but they wanted to see how his fish movie did. Mm. And then they waited too long. And then he was like, well, I'm doing a different movie. Mm -hmm. (laughs) So they actually hired a director who I think is a bit of an odd choice. His name's Guy Hamilton. The only films you'll know him from are Goldfinger and Live and Let Die. He made some Bond movies. So at this time, you know, they, they go after Brando. They're like, we need a name in one of these marquee roles. So they go get him. Uh, his salary was $3.7 million, which is astronomical in 78, and 11.75% of the profits. Holy Toledo. Yeah. And Did uh, not have to learn his lines. Yeah, which would total about $19 million. Yeah, and I'm not going to learn my lines. He proposed to the Salkinds that Jorel appear as a green suitcase or a bagel that had Brando's Oh my gosh, a bagel. And you know, he's fucking with them, right? Oh yeah. He's just coming in. He's just like, I know who I am. You guys probably don't know like this. And so, okay, I want to do, uh, he's all his terms and conditions. Oh yeah, Jor-El's a talking bagel in space. <laughs> just, can you imagine? No. Uh, okay, so that's that's problematic. I already mentioned his his uh, lack thereof to memorize lines. So they had cue cards, put it on the baby's diaper and then they get Gene Hackman as Lex Luthor. So at that point, you're like, ah, maybe we're actually taking this a little bit seriously. We're going to actually... Mr. French Connection. Yeah, it's Oscar winner. Mm-hmm. All the films he made in the 70s, The Conversation. Uh, yeah, yeah. you mentioned the French Connection, Scarecrows. Mm-hmm. I mean, uh, Hackman's a name, right? Yeah. And then the Lex Luthor role is kind of perfect, right? Yeah. So it's kind of coming together, kind of coming together, and they're going to go shoot in Rome. They're building sets in Rome, Matt. Yep. Uh, and they can't go to Rome because Marlon Brando's wanted for an indecency charge for things Last on Last Tango, Tango in Paris. In Paris. Uh-huh. So 
uh, so kinds. I can't go film in uh, Rome. I'm wanted for rape. <laughs> mm-hmm. Dude, what the hell? And then, okay, we're going to move to Pinewood Studios in England. This is where they shoot the Bond films. We're going to do build the sets there. Well, Guy Hamilton can't film films in England because he's a tax exile and can only be there for 30 days. Like, they can't get this thing off the ground. Meanwhile, they've spent $2 million on flying tests because they don't know how they're going to make this man fly in the movie. So we're just pissing away money. We have no one that can work on this movie in certain countries. Like, we got nothing. And in that comes Richard Donner, you know, hot off of The Omen, right? 76. Mm -hmm. And he's like taking a dump on the toilet and they call him and offer him the role on the toilet. And he just like just starts jotting stuff down. Like, we're going to pay you a million for two movies. Uh, Marlon Brando, Gene Hackman. And then he writes at the bottom here, dude, imagine this, Nick Nolte. (laughs) Oh, wow. Man, wow. Thank very, God. It's a very different Superman movie. Would have been ladies. better than James Caan, but yeah. only a little bit. Yeah, there's a lot of yelling and talk about a drunk actor, right? Mm-hmm. So at this point, they 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 deemed Puzo's 400-page screenplay almost unfilmable. So he brings in Tom Mankiewicz, which he's one of the Mank kids. I don't know if he's uh, the, the kid of Gary Oldman Mank or Joseph Mank from uh, All About Eve uh, Mank. But he comes in and he essentially redoes the the, the script from page a page one rewrite, Matt. I'm actually surprised with these foibles and these wanted people <laughs> that Polanski wasn't offered a crack at the script or this direction at some point. Sure, sure. Right. why not? Anyway, keep going, yeah. Yeah. So Mink, Mink does a page one rewrite of the entire thing. And, you know, through the writer's guild, he tries, Donner tries to give him like primo credit, but they denied him. So he gets like a creative consultant credit. But that, that guy wrote the screenplay to this film. I wonder what Puzo's looked like. I bet you can read it online. There's got to be it somewhere. I bet, you know, it was, uh, I, I, I've heard like the tone was really weird. It was a lot more campy, kind of like the 60s Batman show. Mm. Um, okay, so now we're getting into, okay, who's playing Superman here? Here's are people that were considered or talked about. Are we doing any better this time out? Uh, Robert Redford, Burt Reynolds, Sylvester Stallone, hot off of Rocky. Paul Newman was offered all three main parts for $4 million and turned them all down. <laughs> so Lex, Jor-El, and Superman, he was like, I'm not doing it. And I wonder if a lot of these people are just like, a Superman, I wonder if it's still being talked about in kind of a negative way of, that's kid stuff. Comic yeah. books aren't serious medium of entertainment, right? Mm-hmm. Um, Bruce Jenner. <laughs> oh, Lord. Patrick Wayne, John Wayne's son. Neil Diamond. Arnold Schwarzenegger, James Conn again, Christopher Walken, Nick Nolte, John Voight, Perry King. Chris- At this point, they're just looking for anyone. Yeah. Will someone get in the tights? Chris Christopherson, Charles Bronson, and Warren Beatty. I can maybe see. I can see-, see Beatty. Yeah, I can see a little Beatty. I can't see Chris Christopherson playing no Superman. Way. He ain't shaving for you. Yeah, no way. <laughs> He's not shaving those that gorgeous beard. Okay, so what do we do? What, 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 where, where do we go here? How about Juilliard? Yeah. How about an unknown? Maybe someone who's been in, like, one other movie. So enters Christopher Reeve, this, like, 170-pound, like, tr- classically trained actor mm-hmm. who kind of comes in and just slays his screen test. He just has the presence instantly, the charisma, and then especially when they put him opposite Margot Kidder, it's just, it works for them. Think he's nervous in that screen test? Oh, yeah. Have you seen it? Oh, yeah. With the sweaty pits? Oh, my God. <laughs> it's pretty good. You yeah. go look at, uh, on YouTube, right? That poor guy is very, very, very sweaty. Yeah. Uh, 
So, but he's he's still a little lean, right? Mm-hmm. So he works out with Darth Vader himself, Mr. David Prowse, this German uh, who also wanted to play Superman, but they're like, dude, you can't say these lines. No, yeah. <laughs> There's a reason they dubbed you over in Star Wars. He goes from 170 to 212, Matt. Uh, That's huge. Yeah. That's not natural. Yeah. You can't, it, put, on, you can't put on 42 pounds, Jesse. Yeah. And be lean like he is. Yeah. But it's you know it's a it's a lot more it's probably a little bit more organic than what they started doing oh, in, for sure. in the eighties yeah. right sure I mean it just kind of speaks I think to Reeves's commitment as an actor it was like if you guys need me to get big I'll get big and then he's not just like out of control like to me Henry Cavill's like mm-hmm. biceps Too really big. stand out it's like they don't fit the suit like when he shows up in the suit for the first time it's just like it fits him like like a, a three piece suit. But he's not like bulging and like in just like out of control places, right? Well, the other thing too, if you get too muscle bound, you can't move. And Superman is agile, especially to fly gracefully. You can't be stiff. Like think about the classic Superman pose. That's fingertips to finger to to toe tips, mm-hmm. planed mm-hmm. in a plane. Yeah. Just getting like if you're muscle bound, that looks crooked, and like you have to still be nimble and agile to move the way. So he can't be too muscle bound, but. 170 to 212 is a that's a lot of muscle he put on. That's to him. Good job, Chris Reeves. That's changing your diet considerably. You think? That's oh yeah, how many calories are you consuming daily? You're just in the gym, you're just trying to bulk up, you know, your 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 power areas and but not get out of control, right? Right. I'll never forget it just hearing Christian Bell talk about when he played Batman and Batman Begins because he had done that machinist film where he's like a mm-hmm. 125 mm-hmm. and then he put on like 75 like 80 pounds quick to play bat and then they, they had to tell him like chris you're too big you don't fit in the suit now so he had to like kind of scale down from that he went a little too far wild wild body dysmorphia man indeed uh so fine okay we got our actor the cast is assembling itself with some pretty decent names uh i think a funny little story gene hackman had a mustache at the time and he's like i'm not shaving it to play lex and donner's like well come on like you know they hadn't met yet in person you know, you know, oh, I have one too. You know, if, if you shave your mustache, I'll shave mine and we'll just kind of do this production. No mustaches. So Hackman does it and goes and sees Donner and Donner has his mustache still and he just takes it off and he has a fake mustache. He didn't even have one. That's awesome. He just kind of like coaxed his actor into doing it. So to that, I mean, you got what you wanted, right? Genius. But we're here in Metropolis. So the second script, I want to ask you the second script that's pinned by um, Mank. Mank. Is it intended to be two pieces? Yes. Did you so, write both? Yes. So they wrote both, and it's the same cast for both. So the intention was you shoot parts one and two simultaneously, which I don't think had ever been done prior to this. Right. They've done it since with Lord of the Rings, with Infinity War and Endgame, were kind of dual productions. They've never done this. So there's a lot banking on this first film to to be pop, uh, profitable to justify a second one that's already 75% finished. Mm-hmm. But then that's where the problems... Richard Lester versus Richard Donner. Yeah, start. And the Saul kind specifically. And Pierce Spangler, who is another producer with this cohort. But yeah, the intention was, is it's Superman parts one and two. The script title is just Superman. It's supposed to be, you know, one big story. It's awesome. One big continuous story. So, I mean, they're breaking a lot of ground here. They're doing a superhero big time for the first time. Two simultaneous sequels at once. That's wild. Mm-hmm. And so we get to Metropolis finally, and we're like, oh, we're going to finally see Superman. And so we got to settle in with Clark Kent here uh, first. And, you know, we're introduced to Jimmy Olsen, Lois Lane, Perry White, the usual suspects of the Daily Planet here. 
And oh my God, I, I love what they're talking about. Just if you're, I had the subtitles on for this watch. They're talking about some crazy things. Lois's last story at the Daily Planet was drug and uh, sex orgies at the senior citizen home. Yeah. I want to work on something exciting. And she's working on this weird, crazy story about this rapist killer on the loose in Metropolis, I guess. Is that the intention, do you think, to present Lois as salacious? I think so. A little... A little edgy. National Inquiry? A little bit. A little bit, huh? Yeah. Yeah, I think so too. Yeah, like investigative journalism, right? But kind of, I don't want to say bad at it, but kind of maybe a little too eager to sort of see through some of the bullshit. Mm -hmm. But definitely a nose for a story. Yeah. Okay. And they were introduced to Christopher Reeve, but as Clark Kent. Dork. Yeah, dork, dork reporter. This was what I was waiting to tell you was... He based his per- Kent performance on uh, Cary Grant in Bringing Up Baby. I was going to say it had to be, yeah. Yeah. And you can see that. You can see screwball com- comedy just oozing off of this guy. This total doofus, right, of mm-hmm. just like, oh, gee, Lois. And he's like always like pushing up his glasses. You know, he can't even open a bottle without it squirting all over him. He's just so kind of hopelessly pathetic you know not quite peter parker even has a little more dignity than this version of clark yeah yeah. but i like it because he's really selling the part right i mean he's selling like i need this guy to be as the polar opposite of what everything superman embodies because then you're gonna see the difference when they're both kind of on on the screen and reeve is just really good at it he's even charismatic as this dork right i I would kind of want to be the guy's friend just to kind of give him a friend (laughs) Okay, so you're an aspiring actor at Juilliard, and you want to forge a career forward in your path, right? So you want to be this actor. You can tell that he's got the chops, because if you could play Regal Superman and dorky Clark Kent, there's a range there. Certainly, he's also ambitious, because that is a part that, obviously, the names you rattle off, maybe because of preference or the stigma around the project all passed, but maybe not. Maybe it was, you want me to play Superman? What? How do I make all of America happy with my portrayal of Superman? Okay, so I think I'm at a place where going with a no-name is probably a good choice. Mm -hmm. But here's my question for you. Okay. Outside of this film and maybe Blowout, or no, what's the um, the one with Michael Caine? um, Is that Death Trap? Death, there you go, Death Trap. Pretty good movie. That is actually a pretty good movie. (laughs) Kind of a disappointing career for Mr. Fareed. Is it, I don't think it's talent. Mm -hmm. Is it pigeonholed as you can only ever be this character? Yeah. Do you, okay, so we. This is a very early instance of typecasting. I think the earliest one before him that was experiencing it was Sean Connery as James Bond. Bond, yeah. Yeah, but I don't think we're seeing a lot of this in Hollywood because we're not really doing sequels and these huge projects like this, right? You would think after Superman and the wicked amounts of money that one and two and three ball made, mm-hmm. or we'll get into a different discussion on a rock gut cast. Yeah. He was bankable. Sure. What was the other one? Um, a moment in time, a stitch Somewhere in time. In time. Somewhere in time. That, that's, Jane Seymour. That's yeah. all I can think of that the guy made. I'm sure there's a few other things in there, but... He watched one I watched recently from like the, like, 87. It's called Street Smart, where he's like an investigative reporter, mm. and it has like Morgan Freeman as like this, like, kind of like pimp character. Mm. Kind of pretty good. Yeah, not, not bad, but like, it's not a film we talk about, right? I mean, he never got offered that like big role. Like, he never got to be like in like 
Forrest Gump or, mm. you know, like one of those like big, like the Rain Man or something like a prestige film that like also showcases talents because I think the guy could do it, right? After one and two, you'd think that that name on a, a movie poster would sell it. Yeah. But he follows the same path that Daniel Radcliffe and many others have fallen before, and that's you'll only ever be Harry Potter or Superman. Sure. It's kind of tough. I mean, but, you know, you get to kind of live with that longevity. And Is that frustrating, though, as someone who as studied an, at Julia? As is an that frustrating? actor, it absolutely has to be. Because to be. I, know, I, I, know, I know we, you know, fetishize loving these characters a lot, right? But, like, I think at the end of the day, like, they love playing it, but they would also like to get more work and kind of show what else they could do, right? So it it has to be frustrating. As as good as it is to receive the Superman residuals, it also has to be like, ah, I would like to do a, a horror film. Yeah. <laughs> right? And then it, it makes it all the more tragic with, you know, his writing accident um, yeah. in 94, I believe. To anyone who hasn't done kind of, I'm sure they all know what happened to this man. But if you've never done a deep dive into like what actually happened, I'll, I'll do a quick abridged version for you. Uh, he, he severed like, I can't remember the exact numbers because I'm not a medicine man, but essentially his head was not attached to his spine. Right. And emergency surgery, you know, quadriplegic, paralyzed from the waist down. And yeah, you're, you're not even thinking about trying to be an actor anymore. You're trying to think about, you know, your quality of life. Breathing. Yeah. And functioning, you know, with basic motor skills and whatever you can do in whatever capacity. It's kind of interesting how like the latter part of his life up until he died of, you know, pressure sores you know yeah. it's just that's something that happens with you know a lot of these individuals that you know they're in bed a lot of time they sit down for the entire duration of their day it was an infection that kind of you know what, what killed him that he did do it a lot of decent kind of you know proactive work with the disability community outside of that so superman on screen kind of in his own way became he forged a whole different path himself in a very benevolent fashion and i i gotta cheers him for that because it, that's a crazy hand to be dealt you played the most powerful super being that's ever lived and you are literally reduced to i can only move my neck from left to right horseback riding accident right yeah yeah it was like uh, an equestrian like kind of like uh obstacle course and <sighs> the horse stopped and he went and landed head like, over head first really sad and then his and then his wife, like a year later from mm -hmm. lung cancer, never Guys. smoked in her life. Yep. That's kind of crazy. His story is uh a, a champion story for sure, mm -hmm. but a frustrating story as well. Yeah. I do think the guy was one of the possible, I don't know if I say greats, but goods mm -hmm. that we all missed. Yeah. Here's my question, Jesse. If you are Juilliard, 19-year-old actor, 22-year-old actor, whatever, trying to forge a path forward in an ultra-competitive industry, and all you've got to go on is, I'm talented and I'm handsome. Welcome to the list of every actor in Hollywood. Yeah. Because not talented and ugly gets you, you know, work in another field for sure. Yeah. So you come to the table with those two things, and you get offered this part. Yeah. And you know that it's iconic because that's why so many people prior to you might have passed or maybe the script was just terrible, but whatever. Nonetheless, this is one of the all-time fictitious characters of all time. Do you pass? Is there anybody in that position that passes? I'm going to say no. Yeah. What say ye? Yeah. 
In 78, you don't have a lot of perspective on what this could be and could not be, right? Right. I might, you know, be a little more hesitant now. I mean, if I'm being offered Superman, I mean, they're at least considering me. But now it's so saturated that I'll just be, dude, I may as well just be in a Shazam movie, right? Well, I mean, look at the other two characters, Ralph and Cavill. Yeah. It's a troubling part, Jesse. Yeah, and it, I'm not saying no, that Brandon Routh is a good actor. He's just not. Well, but, you, know, and the pro- you know, the problem is, is he's doing like a Reeves impression in that film because mm-hmm. that film's supposed to be the part three of this trilogy, right? Yeah. Um, and then Kavik, uh, Henry Cavill, I just, he has like no charisma to me. That's just me. I know, just, I know was, he's got his- It's not just you. Look, he's got his fans. And Who? Just, uh, no, he doesn't. It's not us. It's not us. <laughs> but His agent? Him and Amy Adams, man, they're, they're DOA, and I love her. Wouldn't. But that film is so tone deaf in a bajillion different ways, whereas this film kind of gets it. It has a pulse, and Reeve is actually, at this point going forward for the rest of the film, he's putting all this on his shoulders, mm-hmm. and I think he's, I think he does a great job at it. To him. Yeah, to him. Yeah, 2004, I believe, was when he, was when he passed. I think he was 51, young, right? Yep. Uh, so, you know, he's fumbling about the Daily Planet. Uh, Lois, uh, you know, they, they follow each other on the way out. And then they get accosted by the smuggler. And I really like this scene because he's playing, like, so cowardly. And you see Lois trying to, like, she's, like, trying to take action, right? She kicks the guy in the face. He shoots. And he catches this bullet and just passes out. And so the guy leaves thinking he killed this man. And he goes, oh, I'm sorry, Lois. I just passed out from all the excitement. And I love this. I'm gonna, I get to, I get to say it because it's the name of the show. This wry smile he gives when he like tosses that bullet out of his hand. He's like, yeah, I know I'm fast. Got like, that shit. I got that. He's like, but you're like, and he, he, because he, he's playing a part. I mean, Superman's an actor, right? Yeah. And so you got an actor, actor to play him. Yeah. He's playing a role here. Clark Kent is the facade. Superman's the the real person, right? Mm-hmm. Really well done. Now, what do you think? Okay, so now we're introduced to, uh, I don't think we've ever done one of his films on, on the podcast, Ned Beatty as Otis. I love Otis's, like, little, like, idiot music. <laughs> I'm gonna, I'll play it later, because we're going to do music school later as okay. well. Okay. But his boom, 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 boom. If you wanted to show me incompetence in music, it's that. Oh, yeah. Fits him really well. You know, he's trying to rip off the blinded newspaper salesman. He took a pretzel, and he didn't pay for it. And, you know, he, he sneaks away from the, in the subway, the cops are after him. And again, let's talk about tone just a little bit. You know, we're playing idiot music, but when we're talking about Luther, we need to show that he's in control, he's powerful and ruthless. And he puts this cop in front of this moving uh, subway train. Kind of brutal, right? (laughs) Okay. So this gets to tone. I love that you brought up tone. Yeah. Lex Luther can't come across as heavy handed yet as the death of Krypton. Yeah. The music and Otis and Miss Tessmacher too. Yeah. Um, God bless Miss Tessmacher. Yeah. Valerie Perrine. Valerie Perrine. Yeah. Do a great job of rounding the edges of Luther for a little while. Like they're going to, we're going to see sharp edges eventually. And I think a pretty ingenious plan. Now we can talk about the real estate piece on that if you want, but the idea to shoot him in two different directions is pretty, pretty smart. Yeah. These missiles. Mm-hmm. Um, look, man, if you want the audience to stay interested, you have to give a fighting chance to your protagonist. That's really easy to do with Superman because he's better than everybody. 
So instead of just admitting, and it's part of the reason why I think Superman doesn't sell as well as we might like is because he's just too damn good. Mm-hmm. Let's give the audience a break from worrying about just how powerful he is by introduce what seems to be kind of a collection of idiots. <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> and so what are you defaulting to Jesse yeah. from the music to the stealing of the pretzel to boobs on Valley Perrine and Miss Tessmacher mm-hmm. humor. Yeah. We're DC, li- do you hear that? Yeah, we're li- it's five letters. H U M O R. Yeah. Sounds nothing like morose. You should try it on occasion with somebody that's not Ezra Miller being cheese dick flash. Because yeah, also, it goes miles to making your franchise work. It's also different than giving Metropolis the fifteen nine eleven treatment with, oh, with the world engine. Like it's right. just like right. it's just so intense and unnecessary. Where it's okay to like, you know what? I've surrounded myself with a cavalcade of idiots, mm-hmm. but you know, one I'm getting laid by one. This other guy does my bidding. He gets me my stuff. I got money and the plan. I'm kind of willing to go with Lex, you know, at, at at this point. I love that it's played by a 78 Hackman. It's kind of perfect. <laughs> if you're the if you're the greatest criminal mastermind in the history of mankind, mm-hmm. you don't align yourself with Otis and and Miss Tessmacher. Mm-hmm. You do a little bit better. Mm-hmm. You're rolling with you know some terrorist magnate or some business tycoon that has terrible terrible intentions. You're in a subway behind some trapdoor. With these two idiots, yeah, yeah, I I love it because it almost kind of presents Luther mm-hmm. as the underdog, yeah. And rarely do we get the antagonist as underdog. That's a great role, yeah. And to Hackman's credit, and I think everybody in this podcast is a Hackman fan, yeah. He kills it, man. He's really good. Is Superman Returns leaned into kind of the cavalcade of idiots again with, mm-hmm. you know, Kevin Spacey's Lex Luthor. But he had a Miss Tessmacher. He had Parker Posey, and I love her. Me too. So she's really good as that foil to him, I guess, right? Yeah. Just like so naive to his evil intentions, but he's paying for real estate for her, and I guess their sex is pretty good, right? It's gotta be. It has to be. Uh, so that's the villain. That's the villain of the film. And I like that it's just, you know, we'll get the heavy later, but it's just like this some just like simpleton who thinks he can take over the world. That's kind of interesting. I right? agree with you. Yes. Yeah. And a fallacy who's going bald. His biggest issue is that like I'm losing my hair and I have all these wigs. <laughs> yeah, we don't have to blow up the Senate, Jesse Eisenberg. We don't have to make these strange decrees or these manifestos on the human condition in this very dark take on there. It's oh, God. just this clown. He's a terrible Lex Luthor. So spacey. Yeah. Is Michael Rosenbaum the best second best <laughs> Luther? The bit? second best Luther might be right. I always thought, you know, you want to talk about fantasy fan casting, but you know, it's maybe just a little too close to doing Walter White again. But I always thought Brian Cranston would have been a terrific Lex Luther. Oh, you couldn't be more right. <laughs> yeah. So How did he not get some love, and it was like Jesse Eisenberg. That's who we're going with. Like, you know, that's a mistake because <laughs> everybody in the world was scratching their head. Like, he's too young, and I just don't buy it. Yeah, uh, he plays. Okay, we don't also get into that. It's a whole different. We think we've done that show already too. The red coats are coming. <laughs> the red coats are coming. Yeah, give that to a master actor because you have to have somebody with the chops to pull off wild underdog mm-hmm. to the greatest Superman that Metropolis, aka the Globe, has ever seen. Yeah. Well, let's introduce the Superman. So go. Uh, Lois has to go cover some, is it Air Force One mm-hmm. arriving? Mm-hmm. Uh, and so she gets in this helicopter and this thing gets tangled up in some wires and it's just, it's going crazy and it ends up on like the edge of this building. And I love just like 
the each uh, spectating in a, the middle of an incident because these people are just like looking at this thing and they're about to be crushed by this helicopter if they don't move, right? Yeah. Good thing there's a Superman coming. Hey, Jim! Excuse me. That's a bad outfit! <laughs> okay, Breslau, move his Easy, miss. I've got you. You, you've got me. Who's got you? I, I can't believe it. I just, I just cannot believe it. He got her. That shot of him running from across the street and then he does like a close-up of ripping the shirt. I don't know how many times they filled that to get it exactly perfect, but that's a great shot, right? Heroic, regal. This was my Halloween costume like four years ago. Like, so it was Clark with my shirt heavily hairsprayed to give that diamond effect <laughs> yeah. with the Superman emblem underneath. Oh, that's pretty good. It was pretty cool. Nice. Yeah. Yeah, when he rips that open, you're that's just awesome. you're just like, let's go here. And yeah. he, he goes into the turnstile of like the of a, a department building, and <laughs> this pimp is just like, oh my god, like look at that outfit. That's a bad outfit. I gotta get that right. Yeah. And then Lois is gonna fall to her death, and these people are just gonna watch it happen. Like, there's one guy who's like, oh my god, look at that, and then Superman comes in and saves her. And you know what? I love that line. I got you. Who's got? You? I got you, Miss. Who's got you? Like, that's that's pretty cute. And and and. In a sweet kind of way, right? And not in an over-melodramatic or like a cutesy romance way. It's just like, she's so flabbergasted. She has to comprehend a flying human in an instant. That's the best she can come up with. I I buy it, right? Marco Kidder. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've talked about her a little bit before, Black Christmas. Black Christmas, yeah. Uh, we're not to the point that's the really troubling part in her life. That doesn't hit till after Superman 2 yeah. hard. Yeah. And there's moments, I think, probably are, she's already experiencing here. Mm-hmm. What do you think about her? This is interesting. I think I think a lot of people have opinions on whether she's the appropriate Lois Lane uh, for this particular film. Uh, she sells it for me mm-hmm. uh, as I'm watching the film. Like, I don't know if I'm gonna like buy like a years long romance or their soulmates, but I buy the flirtation. I buy the the chase. I can see how Clark would get kind of infatuated with this spunky reporter. That's a little, I don't want to say tomboy, but just like she knows how to play with the boys, right? Because mm-hmm. she's in this like media industry. Yeah, hard boiled a little bit. There you go. That's the word. Uh, I kind of buy it. I, it's, it's a different type of, you know, we talk about the Betty Davis effect a lot on this mm. podcast, mm. right? I think it applies a little bit here. Um, and unless you can give me Jessica Lang from uh, King Kong in 76, I don't know who I'm, I'm really picking either. Piper? I think, too young, probably. Yeah. I think this is an inspired choice by Donner. I think sure. it, uh no. <laughs> no. Uh, I'm think, with you, yeah. With I think you. it's a little bit weird, but I think the film, I think they make it work in the Andy film. McDowell. Probably too young, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. I'm just throwing out names just as I'm spitballing here. Okay. I mean, you probably get a Susan Sarandon around this time, maybe. Yeah, maybe. I don't mm. Yeah. You know, one of the elements of Superman that helps, I think, fill in some of the dead spaces of the weekly villain. Mm-hmm 
is this really terrible triangle between Clark, Soup, and Lois. Lois, in any iteration, has always been beholden to Superman in a way that is, he saved my life 15 times, and I'm ridiculously attracted to him. Superman, though, as Superman gets to fight that same superhero problem that they all do. And that's if my villains know who my girl is, then they're going to go after my girl to get to me. So I have to keep her at arm's length, but I'm into her so much. I can't keep her at arm's length because I'm crazy about this. So I'm going to create this persona. That's not me doofus. That is about as opposite as a Superman as you can be in hopes to win her over as Clark until she eventually uncovers my guys. And then, the glasses aren't enough to hide my my disguise anymore. You know what I always forget is he's about to tell her. Yeah. About he halfway through this film, he's like, you know what, charades up. I got it. Mm. And then he, he pulls back. Good thing. Yeah. Because you save that drama, that conflict. Mm-hmm. Look, that's a really cool part of Superman's story. Mm-hmm. What makes that work, though, is Lois. Yeah. If we don't give a rip about Lois, then most of us are like, I just probably wouldn't go to those lengths. And um, for me personally... It's kind of the creed and stop bitching me on the side of the road in Philadelphia about who my dad is because we've been together about five minutes, Bianca beat it, Tessa Thompson. Like she wins me over later, but Mm -hmm. if you can't sell me on wanting to go to those lengths for Lois and that this man who has, and the movie is not even apologetic about it. Mm -hmm. Every woman in Metropolis throwing themselves (laughs) at him, right? Miss Tessmacher later too, right? Right. I'm going to kill you, but I'm going to kiss you before. Yeah. And you choose Lois. Man, you have to really sell me on Lois. Mm -hmm. I'm with you. I know it's controversial, and a lot of people can't stand Margot Kidder and believe that was a terrible cast. Yeah. She works for me in this because if she's just another pretty buxom, whatever, Metropolis-ite, she's just like... In the wash of the great unwash, she's everybody. Mm-hmm. This Lois character sticks out. And you know what she's not? Superman is never sarcastic or smartassy. And Clark's even less so. Yeah, She's a really natural, as you would use, foil yeah. to the character that we see as Soup. And I think it completely works. That's good. Yeah, I kind of didn't know where you were going to come down on the Margot Kidder yeah. debate, but... Yeah, I've always, I've always... I think we both like Sisters. We both like yeah. um, Black Christmas and, you know... She's this. very great in both of those movies. Yeah. But yeah, you know, you know, you know, life came at her pretty hard after, right? And... Uh, is that why she wasn't in three? Well, she... Or is no, it four? Which no, is, she's the, not in, is she in three but not in four? She's, she's in four, but like it's like a, lo, a little part, right? She's, she's not just, in not in three because, you know, the producers kind of did her uh, did her dirty, right? Well, struggling with mental health issues big time, right? Yeah, yeah. Was it substance related? Oh, yeah, mm-hmm. So. Uh, yeah, exactly. But no, no it's, that's, he saves her, you know, he, he tells her some good lines. Everyone's just trying to be like, oh my God, this guy's flying. Like, what is going on here? And I love when he catches that helicopter with one arm and he's just like, yeah, I got this guy's mm-hmm. like, he's like smiling before he catches it. It's great. There's no worry on him that he's about to just save the day. And then we get a pretty cool montage. And I wondered if Paul Verhoeven watched Donner Superman when composing RoboCop because mm. Robo gets his like first night out montage of killing the the, the rapist, the convenience store, yeah. and then the disgruntled city mayor. Yeah, Superman gets to go after like a jewel thief, uh, a band of other robbers. And then in one, I, I see if you got this, Matt. Uh, he saves a cat out of a tree for this little girl. 
Rufus or Whiskers or whatever the hell this cat's name is. And this girl goes inside to her house and goes, Mommy, this flying man saved, took the cat out of the tree for me. And she's like, what if I told you about lying and fibbing? And there's like an off-screen slap of this little girl. Did you catch that? <laughs> Dude, 1978's great. Things were different. There was no sunscreen then either. I couldn't believe that. And then they just go on to the next scene. Crazy. Yeah. And then the next scene's Air Force One, dude, about to, like, plummet. Dude, there goes Jimmy Carter's presidency. We hardly missed you. Oh, Jesus. And Superman comes and takes the, the wing. Like, <laughs> I kind of like that guy where he's just, like, fly, like, just yeah. fly. Because I can't, I can't, you won't believe what is out here. Yeah. Yeah. It's a good little montage of super feats, right? I love, too, that they choose. And, you know, before we get too much further into this, we have to mention... Jerry Suster and, and Joe, Joe Siegel, Joe Siegel, Look, Jerry these, Siegel and Joe Suster. Uh, yeah. Suster. Yeah. These two gentlemen have been through the ringer mm -hmm. with this character for a beloved American icon and two immigrants that create this character out of thin air from true personal tragedy, yeah. tragedy. The Jim Croce's of the comic book oh, world. Perfectly <laughs> stated. The right. Jim Croce's of the comic book world. Yeah. There is the story out there that when this finally came to the silver screen, that mm -hmm. the two of them both wept uncontrollably with seeing this beloved character that they had created and been fucked over legally multiple times and made no money on yeah. over and over, finally saw this. Mm -hmm. And to Christopher Reeve's credit, I know that he was extremely cordial and represented himself quite well with the two creators of the man that they thought he thought was going to make his career and, and to an extent did for whatever his career was. Yeah. We have to talk about them. The reason Superman is bulletproof, Jesse mm -hmm. is because I don't know if it's Siegler, Siegel or Schuster's father, but one of them ran a convenience store. Their dad ran a convenience store and small time robber shows up to steal the till from the drawer. And in the process of that kills by gun dad. Mm -hmm. So to work through that, they made Superman bulletproof. That's the singular reason that bullets bounced off his chest in the creation of this character That's because dad got gunned down in the chest. I think it's Jerry Schuster. Uh, Jerry Siegel. <laughs> no, I'm trying to, I'm, I know I said Jerry, but I'm trying to think. I think it's Siegel. I think it's Siegel's dad that's killed, but it's a really sad story. Very personal, right? But for as much as that character was monetized and turned into this and turned into that and, and such an iconic force, those two poor gentlemen got raked over the coals for creating this guy. Yeah, this, these guys are like in their like 60s working at a post office. Post office. And created the first and most popular superhero that's ever existed. What the hell, DC? Yeah, exactly. Take what care the hell? of your, your, your family. Mm -hmm. It's remarkable. It's yeah. just, and I don't know. Bill Finger and Bob Kane, where are you right now? Yeah. yeah Bill Finger got screwed <laughs> royally by Mr. He did too. Mr. Kane, right? He did too. But yeah, no, it's just a lot of that. It's just, it's just a lot of those, you know, you know, credit where credit's due. These two. Yeah, you're right. Immigrants that created this character that has a lot of Christ's, you know, uh, symbology, right? Uh, have you ever read The Amazing Adventures of Cavalier and Clay? Yes. Yeah. William Chabon. Yep. Yeah. No, Michael, Michael, Michael Chabon, yeah. yeah. But heavily influenced on the lives of Siegel and Schuster. Pulitzer Prize winning writer. It's a great piece of literature. You know, he took a couple cracks at Spider-Man too. Really? Mm-hmm. I'd like to see that. Yep. Yeah. 
uh, seek that out if you kind of want to dive into a little bit more of that world of like creating a hero from scratch like that. They take a lot from those guys. Yeah. Uh, this is a scene I, I I guess I always forget too. After the maybe and maybe it's not in your version, but after his night of super adventuring, he goes back to the fortress of solitude and kind of has a talk with. So okay, he has a talk with dad, and dad's like, "So what was it like?" And Superman's honest with him, and is just like, "It was good. It felt good doing those things." So almost kind of getting off. Not like I don't. Yeah, not, yeah, yeah. Not getting off in a perverted way, but like getting off in like. I really kind of like this superheroing business. It made me feel good about myself, about these abilities, about this responsibility you bestowed to me. Uh, I think a pretty interesting little scene, like Superman kind of like admitting, like it was kind of fun, like chasing down the bad guys and beating them. <laughs> and as for humanity, thank God. Because mm-hmm. if it's the other way, we're in real trouble. So we get to this great scene. Perry White this whole time, who's played by Jackie Cooper in this film, who was a member of the Little Rascals R Gang as a child actor, right? And wow. he's really good as Perry White here, 40 years later, right? Mm. And, you know, he wants to sell a story as good as the first time Moses talked to God about the commandments, right? Who's going to talk to Superman and get the first story? Well, of course, Lois Lane is going to get that because her and Clark are so infatuated. So he goes to her penthouse balcony here for this interview. And I love this scene. I'm going to play the audio. It's, it's, it's not too long, but these two flirting with each other and talking about the color of their underwear and just kind of like, she's just like, how big are you? But like, there's a lot of like double entendres in this and in, in a very like courting type of way. Mm-hmm. Start with your vital statistics. Are you married? Uh, no, no, not. Do you have a girlfriend? Uh, no, I don't, but, uh, if I did, Miss Lane, you'd be the first to know about it. Um, how old are you? Over 21. <laughs> oh, I get it. You don't want anyone to know how old. Okay. And how big are you? How tall are you? Uh, about 6'4". Six, 6'4". Four. Six four. And, uh, how much do you weigh? Mm, around 2, 225. 2, 225? She's like, wow. Mm. <laughs> uh, well, um, uh, I assume then that the the rest of your bodily functions are normal. Mm. <laughs> Sorry, I beg your pardon. Well, putting it delicately, do you eat? Uh, yes, uh, yes, I do. When I'm hungry. You do? Mm-hmm. Of course you do. <laughs> well, well then, uh, is it true that uh, you can see through anything? Uh, yes, I can. Oh, pretty much. Mm-hmm. And that you're um, totally impervious to pain? Well, so far. What color underwear am I wearing? Hmm. Oh, I'm sorry. I embarrassed you, didn't I? Oh, no. No, 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 not at all, Miss Lane. It's just that this platter must be made of lead. Uh, yes, it is, so. Oh, you see, I, uh, I sort of have a problem seeing through lead. Oh, that's interesting. Problems in first name. Hmm. Uh, do, uh, do you have a first name? What do you mean, like, uh, Ralph or something? No, no, I mean, like, uh... Ralph Pink. Superman. <laughs> Pink. Oh, my God, these two. Um, sorry, Miss Lane. I didn't mean to embarrass you. Oh, <laughs> You didn't embarrass me. Um, 
uh, what's your background? Uh, where do you hail from? Well, it's uh, kind of hard to explain, actually. See, I'm from, um, well, pretty far away. Another galaxy, as a matter of fact. I come from a planet called Krypton. Huh? Krypton. Oh, Krypton! With a C-R-I? Uh, no, no actu actually, it's Krypton with a K-R-Y, P-T, going. K-R-Y. Do you like pink? Hmm. Big line. I like pink very much, Lois. Love it. That's so good, Jesse. In the middle of this. Did you hear Williams? Like, it's a very yeah. silent scene. And then he finally yeah. is like, this is the time when the music comes in. <laughs> and all these questions, where are you from? What's your weight? What do you eat? Blah, blah, blah. Just, do you like me? Mm -hmm. Deep shit about pink. That's so well done. It's and just, she's really good hey, there, man. Got, I think we got to credit Mank a little bit. That's a really good dialogue. I don't yep. even think Mark Webb at the like mm -hmm. height of it could really figure that out with Spider-Man, right? That's good. Uh, Joss Whedon, like that's a really good tennis match of volleying back and forth of, you know, playful flirting that's getting a little more seductive and sexy. And then when they get to that line at the end of she's just like, you know what? Forget it. I'm shooting my shot right here. Do you like pink? And it's just like, Lois, you're a weirdo. I'm not answering that. He buys in and it's just like, I like it very much, Lois. Yeah, good for him. <laughs> yeah, right? He's not stupid. No. And in the middle of all this, he screws up majorly. And I don't blame him in the slightest because he's like got like love goggles on. <laughs> but he admits to her, hey, I can't see through lead. I don't know why. I can't explain it. And as a viewer, I have no idea why. And I don't think it matters. But she's going to write that in her periodical. And that's what Lex is going to read yes. and use it against him. Yeah. And call it youthful loveless right doesn't Naivete. doesn't really face him and it's going to be a huge thing and in just a little bit sure is what do you think of that whole scene then love it they're about to go fly and do the whole flying business but this is a pretty great scene i mean there's nothing like superheroing about this other than like this is like two people kind of falling for each other and going on their first date it's kind of a pretty cool first date they really do make this an important piece of the film, and that's the relationship between Lois and Superman. You have to tackle that, but you could go any number of ways. Maybe it's a merely a side point that you kind of care about. They really do focus on this. Again, to Donner's credit, yeah. you know how you keep a four tent pole film firmly staked with four tent poles? Play the love angle mm -hmm. and find a way not to shoehorn it in in some bullshit manner that we see oftentimes, but in a real way. This interview is a conversation that I guess you can argue would be in a newspaper, but it sounds like a conversation that you probably have when you sit down with drinks with someone on their first date. Yeah. So you said it, this is their first date. Mm -hmm. So instead of going on the dance, they go for a fly. Dude, we're going flying through the Hell yeah. New York skyline. That sounds fantastic. It's great, yeah. Yeah, but I like that without skipping a beat naturally, organically. Do you like pink? in the middle of an answer for a question that she's asked him. And what do you think of that as the, the moment of like a fairly quiet scene? It's just volleying dialogue back and forth. Williams is like, okay, now the music's coming in. Yeah. Like it's the moment it's happening. It's like these two are like kind of into each other. Well, if you ask someone about what do you think about my underwear? Mm -hmm. I've got a nice pair on. Now I'm going to ask you about it, Jesse. They're pretty fancy. Is Spider-Man on them? No, they're sweet Tommy <laughs> oh, Johns though. Okay. Um, it's quite a, it's quite a pattern, but yeah. Yeah, Batman's on mine. I'm just kidding. Okay, so to, to us, um, 
That's a really, really well done scene. And I like that it's not super drawn out. It's about, what, 90 seconds maybe? Yeah. Perfect. They go fly, you know, she falls. They hold each other. It's, it's, it's all really good. And then it ends. He bids her farewell. I don't, I don't think he kisses her here. No. No. He's not going to kiss her until she's dead. <laughs> right? Scream. Yeah, we'll get there. We're getting, cool. we're getting there. Uh, and they do a cool thing here. Where he flies off and in the same shot pans around, gets into the tuxedo somehow, yeah. and comes in through the front doors, Clark. I, I don't know how they did that. Awesome. Yeah. And just and then he comes in and he's like, oh, fumbling. We're like, oh, Lois, we had a date tonight. And he's just like so goofy instantly. And then she's like, oh, I must have forgotten. And she's just like coming down from this high, right, of just like being with Superman. Yeah. And he takes off the glasses and is like smirking of like, I'm Lois, I need to tell you something. He's going to do it. And then he just like, for whatever reason, gets cold feet and just like, now's not the right time. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Yeah. That'll pay off later, right? Sure. Uh, but yeah. At for, Niagara Falls? <laughs> yeah, Niagara Falls. But uh, yeah, so so we had that. And she writes a great story, great tagline. I spent the night with Superman. <laughs> so good. Yep. Yeah, people are going to read that, right? Mm-hmm. And then this is where Lex reads, oh, my God, this guy can't see through lead. Where did he say he his planet blew up in, like, the 40s? Uh, let me look into that. So you're kind of seeing the the intellect of Lex Luthor in not a, like, we're going to send an army over this uh, Agra Agaba to go <laughs> steal a thing. Like, no, it's going to be me and my doofus idiots, uh, and we're going to exact our plan. So... I also like his plan here because we're going to see a little bit more of that when they're going to hijack these nukes, right? By inputting different launch codes that's going to kind of throw off the location to the San Andreas Fault. Gene Hackman and Ned Beatty are like, in an, they're like in an Abbott and Costello movie, and I kind of love it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> uh, dude, Otis is such an idiot, and their first plan is to have Miss Tessmacher laid out in the middle of like a car act. Dude, they flip, they Casino Royale this car, by the way. Oh, yeah. She's there on the pavement. The army shows up. Larry Hagman, did you catch yeah. uh, Mr. Uh, JT? JR Ewing. JR himself? Yep. And in a very, it's kind of pervy in a a way the 70s could just excel at, right? It's just like... Massage your chest. Massage your chest. Wait a minute, guys. I wouldn't do something I wouldn't have my own men do. I'll give this woman mouth-to-mouth resuscitation. Jesus Christ. Poor Miss Tessmacher. And in this, uh, Otis's arm wasn't long enough to write the codes on. So he put the wrong sequence in. So they got to go do it part two, right? Yeah. Take two. And I don't know if you caught Otis in these next scenes, but he has a black eye, dude. Yeah. Lex beat him up. Beat the crap out of him. Yep. So now the plan is to pretend to be carrying this wide load while Miss Tessmacher goes in to do the codes. She's a little more capable. But I kind of like that. It's a little capery. It's a little 70s ridiculous. It's a little Abbott and Costello. And it feels a little comic booky. Like, this yes. feels like something that you would read in, like, a Superman comic from the 60s of, like, wow, look at this crazy, like, nuclear missile scenario. <laughs> like, them fumbling about this. I- I'm kind of on board with it. Hell, yeah. Again, to tone, because yeah. it's going to get real serious in 15 minutes or so. The tone's perfect. Let's let these people enjoy this film because we're going to put them through 1978 hell in a few minutes. I love it. Richard Donner really understands the relationship he's building with the audience Mm -hmm. in this character and with this comic relief as antagonist. How about that? Otis, do you want to see a really big arm? Mm -hmm. (laughs) He crawls into the back scene and just beats the hell out of him. That's right. 
Uh, but now we get into, and we, then we, uh, we get in a little bit late. Lois is already out on assignment. She's investigating some guy that's buying up huge chunks of land out in the desert. Hint, hint, it's Lex. Yeah. <laughs> Lex Corp, right? And I love, I, I kind of thought that like my sound system blew up for a second, but when Superman gets this like supersonic uh, message from Lex that only dogs can hear. Yeah. Dogs are barking. I felt like I was Superman and I could only hear it. And then he's getting this message of like, there's like this poison that's going to go off in the air ducts if you don't come to my lair now. The poison pellet. Yeah. And Superman just leaps out of this building because everyone just ignores Clark Kent to begin with. And if he killed himself, I guess they'd be okay with it. He gives him a countdown too. Five minutes, right? Yeah. And so he goes down or he turns into Superman, flies around the city, trying to find hone in on Lex's signal, ends up on the pavement and then like, Drills his way to his lair. So cool. And then this is where you're missing out. And I think this is the best addition to the extended version, which is Lex puts him through three tests. He like tries to machine gun him to death in this like Sonny Corleone fashion. And you just get to see these bullets just bounce right off of Superman. And then he goes into the second test, which is like this like flamethrower room Mm. where he tries to burn him. And I don't know how they did this effect, but it looks like Reeves is in the middle of the flames and just like walks right through them. It's really cool. And then the last one's uh, like a cooler, like a freezer. And they try to freeze Superman into a block of ice, and they do. But then he just explodes from it. And then he comes down to the uh, Lex's door and enters his little lair. That's awesome. It's a pretty cool little sequence. Like, I mean, the movie's already 220. They could have left that in there, right? Yeah, especially because it's, it's a little devoid of action right now. Yeah. It's not a bad idea. We're about to get to the capital F finale of this film, right? Yeah. But it's a it's a cool little seat, like a, a testing of sorts of like, Lex is like, let me see if I can just do away with this guy by traditional means. And he has his fail safe, right? Is, yeah. you know, in this lead container here. Mm-hmm. And I love this line too. If he busts the door down and Lex goes, it's open, come in. And Otis, take the cape for the gentleman. <laughs> Superman gives him a really dirty look and, I don't think he wants to give it to me, Mr. Luthor. <laughs> yeah. Luthor, Mr. Luthor. And then we get the, the, the villain plan here. I'll, I'll play the, the audio here for us. Everything west of this line is the richest, most expensive real estate in the world. San Diego, Los Angeles, San Francisco. Everything on this side of the line is just hundreds and hundreds of miles of worthless desert land, which just so happens to be owned by... Alex Luthor Incorporated. Now, call me... Foolish, call me irresponsible. It occurs to me that a 500 megaton bomb planted at just a proper point would uh, would destroy most of California. Millions of innocent people would be killed. The West Coast as we know it would fall into the sea. Bye-bye, California. <laughs> Hello, new West Coast, my West Coast. Costa del Ex, Lutherville, Marina del Ex. Otisburg. Otisburg? Who's this monster? She's got her own place, man. Otisburg? It's a little bitty place. Otisburg? Okay, I just wipe it off. That's all. It's a little town. You're a dreamer, Lex Luthor. A sick, twisted dreamer. Your plan couldn't possibly work. I'll admit there were a few problems. Adjusting the precise trajectory of the missile. Finding the optimum stress point for the fault line itself. Which, by the way, is uh, target zero, right here. Ooh. And they superimpose his Costa Deluxe map with the actual like fault right there. It's a it's a it's a good, uh, cool transition there. 
What do you think of Lex's plan here? Okay, let's get to it. Yeah. Maybe top five plans for ambition and realistic purposes that we've talked about. You know what? I want to make a ton of money. The way I'm going to do that is recreate the West Coast on a bunch of land that I own so that I can then colonize it or I can monetize it. Mm-hmm. I don't want to turn the whole world into rubble and, and rule over it. I just want to make some money. I don't want to create perfect humans that I can you know deal drugs to and fuck them up. I just want to make some money. Mm-hmm. Really simple. Yeah. And about what Lex can pull off. He does have no Infinity Gauntlet. Yeah. He's got a couple of warheads and that's it. Yeah. I I love it. And man, Hackman's really a little bit sinister for the first time, yeah. but also a little comedic. Yeah. Otis Otisburg. <laughs> Miss Tessmacher put it there. Yeah, Miss Tessmacher has Miss Tessmacher Peak mm-hmm. up at, in like Northern California. And Otis just wants like some little sea chantate that he can call his own. And Lex won't even have him. That That's how low he thinks of Otis. Otisburg. I kind of love it. And when Hackman throws that stick into the ground and like kind of creates his own like earthquake imagery, like in the glass. Yeah. It's pretty good. Yeah, yeah, I'm with you. I think this is a great plan. It's big, but we're not taking the world over big. I mean, this is big to an extent of we're affecting like a small region for money purposes, mm-hmm. yeah. right? And I think Superman's a little worried at this point. And when, once he hears about there's two missiles, there's not just one. And he freaks out a little bit. And this is when he opens this case of like, ah, oh, you ain't gonna, the detonation codes are in there. He tries to uh, fool him, right? And then there's this kryptonite rock, right? That they've stolen from the museum. Yep. It's pretty good, and you can kind of see Lex is like, my fail-safe, it was going to work, and with that around your neck, you won't be able to stop these missiles, right? And so, throw some into the pool's going to drown them out here from, from the thing, if not for this missile going to Hackensack, New Jersey. And I love this little bit of uh, acting here. Miss Tessmacher goes, my mother's from Hackensack. And Lex Luthor looks at his watch, and he just goes, no. Uh, like, he's just so cold and mm-hmm. just, just like, uh-uh. It's like, it's over for Hackensack, Miss Tessmacher. And so she's like, well, you know, I'm, she's still a little good natured, even though she's with this awful person. Uh, goes and saves Superman, right? But not before she can get a little smooch, right? <laughs> I love that he's underwater too, and he's struggling to lift this little measly chain off his neck. Yeah, chain with the gym. This big rock on it. Necklace, essentially. Huge rock necklace. And the minute he opens up that lead case and exposes him to the kryptonite, kryptonite Man, his power's gone immediately. Mm-hmm. Um, good for Lex. Yep. Drapes it around him, throws him in the pool. And I think buys himself some time, right? Sure. Like this time lost, flailing about in the pool, dying, mm-hmm. is going to be time that's going to cost Superman. And like that's yeah. going to become a theme here in, real real quickly. But Miss Tessmacher jumps in, takes the thing off him, but not before planning a big smooch on him. And he's like, why did you do that, Miss Tessmacher? I didn't think you'd let me do it afterwards. She has a really sad line, too, and it's why I always end up with the crummy guys. It's not yeah. it's not exactly that, but it's what She it, knows she's bad at picking men. Yeah. Fuzzy and the lollipop you, and the squeezed out tube of toothpaste. But not you, Superman. You're a good guy because you say you don't lie, and I believe you're going to go to hack. And he does. First dummy oh my god and okay so we, we got to get into it here the kind of this is like the big showcase like i said the capital f finale of the film we get a lot of superman flying it's rear projection it's reeve on wire i this is the best i can come up with in 78 but you know what give me the, give me do give me a rear projection over cgi any day of the week yeah i think he looks great here and when he gets this missile and then thrusts it into space 
And from space, he sees this other one ignite oh. in the San Andreas Fault. Yeah. What do you think of all that? What do you think of the, with the flying in general? But then, like, we're about to really get into it here in just a second. Okay, so come on. Go, 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 go. Get there, get there, get there, get there. Because he's got it. The sooner he can get that, then the sooner he can go to the other coast and save. Maybe you can get both. Yeah. Nope. He doesn't even get to turn around before it hits the San Andreas Fault. And, you know, I'm not a big natural disaster guy. But this is really well done. My favorite part in this whole natural disaster is the the dam. Yeah. Oh, man, that looks cool. The Hoover Dam? Hoover as Dam. A mi- miniature? <sighs> yeah, he... Uh, yeah, he sees this nuke go off from space, and then like Mushroom Cloud City instantly. This happens in real life, Matt. This scenario is about to play out if it did in real life. This is the biggest news story of all time. A nuke went off in the fault, and then California has like a fourteen point whatever, and like everything's crumbling on itself, and it's up to Superman to to save the day. What does this uh, slug line look like? Is it interior Earth's crust day? Superman refixes the Earth's crust? Gotta be, Because right? I love that image, right? right? Of him, like, almost, like, doing a squat with the Earth's crust, yeah. pushing it up. Yeah. And, like, looking for it, trying to, like, put it all back together because... You know, for science nerds out there, you know, you know, fault lines are just like when the 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 earthquakes happen when one Plate land shift like, on plates they go on top of each other, right? They like shift dramatically. He's just trying to fix that, right? right? Pull the tectonics back. Cool imagery, right? Of yeah. him like in magma, interior magma day, trying to fix the earth, and he does, but not before California has had like a fifteen point three. And doggone it, if. All of the dams coming down and different flooding and things happen. That's probably fixable, but the one thing that isn't fixable, and that's in a really well-shot sequence, Mm -hmm. this crevice that opens up and just devours Lois's car. She gets swallowed up by the earth. What a fucking terrible way to die. It suffocates by by being buried. Yeah. Ugh. Ugh is right. There was something I noticed watching last night where... He goes to the Golden Gate Bridge first because there's a school bus about to fall off the edge. Yep. And he pushes it back over. And there's a guy on the bus and he goes, hey, it's Superman. Mm-hmm. Superman is worldwide news at this point. This is San Francisco, not Metropolis, right? Like, they know about him out here. And he's about to become, like, an icon for literally saving the day. Saving a train, a power plant, the Hoover Dam. Uh, it's all really good. He saves Jimmy. That small town from getting flooded by rocking those knocks down, or knocking those rocks. Yeah, down. I don't know if people live below the Hoover Dam, but that's your insurance has to be astronomical for living by the, a yeah. huge body of water like that. Yep. But yeah, you're right. It's all leading to this, and it seemed like he he did it. He seems pretty proud. It, I I I solved it. I fixed the Earth. I saved all the people in danger. And then he gets kind of this like wave of like sound, I guess, right of Lois just being crushed Help. by Earth. And he goes to her, but it's too late. I mean, she's been down there for like several minutes. She's, she's nothing. She dies. Like they, they killed off Lois Lane in this movie. Can you yeah. believe it? No. <laughs> and as troubling as that is, the most troubling part in the film when I was a kid is what's coming up. You got it? Oh God. Okay, here we go. Hold on to something, everybody. It is forbidden for you to interfere in human history. One thing I do know, son, and that is you are here for a reason. It is forbidden for those things I can do. 
all those powers. And I couldn't even save him. It is Everyone on the planet heard that scream, right? Yeah. <laughs> just like just pure anger and sadness and rage. And other than stupid Superman choking out Zod and snapping his neck at the end of Man of Steel, I don't think we've ever we've never seen like this emotion come out of him like this before. Like this is real. All of the humor and lightheartedness mm-hmm. is gone. Yeah. With what might be a top five movie scream ever. Yeah, it's a pretty good one. As a as a you know as a kid, mm-hmm. I used to hide my ears and eyes at this point because that was so harsh and violent and rage filled. Mm-hmm. If you have these moments of levity with Miss Tesmacher and Silly Otis and these failed attempts to steal these nuclear warheads and all of that silliness, I think what it does is it allows your audience to really feel the magnitude of what's happened upon Lois's death because if it's just Sad, sad, morose, morose, dark, 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 and Lois is dead. You're just like almost exhausted, like, oh my God, please get to the end. This is really playing in the peaks and valleys so well. That's a big deal, Jesse, to kill Lois. That's braver than what we've seen in most of the Avengers films. Yeah. Now, they're going to undo it. But nonetheless, first time time viewing, you don't think they're going to undo it. How Mm -hmm. do you fix that? She's dead. Yeah. Well, you fix the timeline, (laughs) I guess. But- it's handled really, really well as his most important thing, although he loves mankind, Lois is his most important possession, mm-hmm. is taken from him as he was saving everybody else, which goes back to what we talked about with dad. Yeah. While I'm emboldened yeah. or given the responsibility of everybody else and mm-hmm. all of these others, what about these other three that really are tantamount to Myself, mm-hmm. Lois, and if our child, if we ever have yeah, one. Yeah, he's breaking his Jorel's first commandment, right? Got to because, Dad, this isn't working. And I like that this is kind of even set up pretty well a little bit earlier where Lois asks him, how how fast can you fly? He's like, I've never really tried before. He's about to show you right now. He's about to turn back Earth. Uh, and I like it. I like that he was just a little too late with the nukes because he was drowned out in Lex's swimming pool with the kryptonite that he was a little too late to save Lois, and now time's been an issue. And what's he going to do? He's going to undo time in a very science fiction way. Of course this isn't going to work in reality, people. Like, turning back the Earth isn't going to, like, rewind time like a VCR, right? Destroy the Earth. Yeah, it'll cause more problems, right? But I like in the sanctity of this film that it was kind of about, like, a loved one yeah. and trying to do your best to repair time. That's why it works for me. me and I think it's a cool visual of him, him flying around that earth. It's kind of cool. Right. And then sets it right afterwards. Yeah. though. Mm-hmm. Gets it back to the normal speed that it turns at. Yeah. Fixes it and then refixes it. Yeah. And then gets there with Lois as like her car's running out of gas. And like, she's like giving him hell for being late and whatever, but he's just like relieved as <laughs> can be alive. that. Like you're alive. Yeah. You can rib me pretty good, but like, at least you're still here. Right. It's pretty great little little landing, a little action ending, and a little roguish Superman. I mean, like if if they could get Marlon Brando to come back and do a sequel, he'd probably have some words with his son about altering human, uh, yeah, destiny, right? Yeah. 
And then we wrap up. Now, this is interesting because, like, the film ends very quickly after this. Yeah. Lex and Otis are going to prison. They're going to jail, man. Mm-hmm. And I like that Lex reveals his bald Lex Luthor head in this moment. And uh, him and Otis are still just jawing at each other, right? And Lex is, or Superman's like, we're on the same team, Warden or whatever. You're like, a better Warden than the Shawshank Warden, right? <laughs> and... He flies up to space and then goes into space and then looks at the camera, smiles at the camera and flies away and then credits, right? Yeah. It really seems like, wow, is that the ending? First of all, well, we'll get to why it works, but also like, I feel like there's like more to this story than like, kind. Of, they kind of set up a sequel without setting up a sequel, if that makes sense, right? Yep. They really ended in a way of like, there's more to this. I want to see more, but we're getting out like, well, we can, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, and kind of think about it. How do you not leave the theater in 1978 completely jazzed and feel good about yourself and about humanity than leaving the theater when the last thing you saw was Superman smile at you as he flew past the screen? I mean, you're like in a good mood. At the end of Man of Steel, I am depressed as fuck. Like, yeah. just, yes. This is like back to an era when we figured out blockbusters. Like, think how Star Wars, Star Wars ends in the throne room and they're getting medals and it's very pompous mm-hmm. and joyous. And like, we could be like kind of proud and a little joyous about the, like the films we watched and don't get me to like, I, I love the ending of seven. I, I, I love an ending like that any day of the week. Now this movie needs to end like that. But th- this is a particular like era in film where we were just like, we're going out on a good note, right? We're yep. not like leaving you hanging out, thinking about the next sequel. We're giving you a good finale and you're going to feel good walking to your car. Yeah. Your smoke filled, <laughs> your smoke smelling car, right? <laughs> yeah. Dude, everyone was smoking in the eighties. I think it's a great ending. I think it's it's it, it ties up everything nicely with leaving you uh, wanting a little bit more. Go home happy. The good guy won. But there's still what ifs that are already in the movie that don't have to be in post film credit sequences. Yeah, the po- Zod's still in that mirror thing. What's going to happen with Lois? And Lex. I mean, Lex, Lex isn't dead. Right? And yeah, so it's... And, and if none of those things played out then there's still plenty of conversations you can have about, well, don't forget. So, I mean, there's, I guess it speaks to Richard Donner mm-hmm. really being in control of a project, mm-hmm. really knowing where he wanted to go and how this was supposed to play out. Now we'll talk about later what happened, but you know, we can talk about Feige's genius through 32 films. And I, I will be the first to say the guy handled it well, but again, to, the importance of being the first one to do it. Yeah. Right. To Richard Donner on that, man. Good yeah. job. It's a good directorial job. I think he knew the material. He got himself a good guy to write a script. He, the cast was just worked really well for him as well. Yep. Yeah. Great directorial job. Maybe we'll talk a little bit more about him uh, coming up here in a second. Um, but here I'm going to introduce this. I don't know, Matt, maybe this could be a little segment on the show when relevant, when we have good musical scores, cause it's not going to happen every week because I'll tell you this, every Marvel movie has maybe the most forgettable amount of music I've ever heard in mu- in movies, mm-hmm. but sometimes it does something a little bit more special. So we'll just call this music corner for right now or music around or whatever you want to call it. And let's just kind of talk about music and kind of like, like what it makes you feel, what type of emotions does it make you feel, uh, So this is the Planet Krypton's theme.
Hey, John Williams, check on your musicians. They're going all out right there. Yeah. Brass heavy, right? Regal. Regal, royalty, alien. Like, he's really trying to show, like, just how, like, the pomp and circumstance of what Krypton is supposed to be all about, right? It's To answer your question, is it more string heavy? Is Batman more strings or Superman more strings? I mean, he's using strings and brass, like, heavy and and a slow build, too, right? The beginning of that's very distant, too. That's because we're we're zooming in on the planet, right? Yeah. We haven't got there yet. Yeah, really well done. Yeah, Williams knows. Like again, I'm telling you, if you if you're a director and you work with John Williams, I don't just see what he comes to you with because I think he gets it. Yeah. He knows how to watch a movie and be like, "This is what I'm going to do." Yeah, this is the uh, the death of Jonathan Kent. His funeral. Middle America, right? It's just it's Kansas. It's it's domesticated. I think he lets the strings do a little bit more work here in this one, but it's it's kind of sad. But like it almost feels like a building block in the story of like this is a state we have to get to the death of a familial figure before you realize your greater destiny, right? Well, it'd really be easy to go like tinny piano and feel lonely and sad, but that's almost proud. Like the send off for this man who was about God mm-hmm. and family and yeah. farming completely appropriate and not the funeral that's oh man yeah thank god <laughs> yeah play, plenty of that in the rest of dc's crap yeah play that at my funeral i mean that, yeah, that's exactly. dude i'm going out like very majestic yeah yeah <laughs> celebrating this man's yeah. significant accomplishments and his significance to the i think the story being told right yep proud uh i mentioned this one a little bit earlier <laughs> tripping over itself isn't it that's genius yeah. it's incompetence in music form yeah I, I can't help but also think of like an, another john williams score uh home alone the wet bandits right mm-hmm. here's these two idiots that are way <laughs> over their head i mean that's otis and this crew right yes i mean it almost sounds like and to ned Beatty's credit for i guess going along with this not being infuriated at the premiere of superman the movie but like it almost kind of sounds like like fat guy music too. Like it's yeah. the tuba, and he's yeah. like, "Oh man, here I am, this just like sloth of a person, just mm-hmm. going from scene to scene." Like it's yeah. it fits those characters really well, perfectly. And then the love theme, right? You can read my mind. triumphant yeah and if you're flying through clouds and flying through time and space that's kind of the music you do it feels like flying music in a very romantic courting way it's just again i can't sing the praises of williams enough he slays this score and you probably know where i'm going with here in in just a few moments i think so 
Uh, the most expensive film ever made at this point in 1978, $55 million. It was the biggest production ever attempted. Wow. $300 million gross. It was a huge hit when it came out. I think everyone had Superman fever and was just like, oh my God, you can make movies out of these comic book characters? Mm-hmm. Let's make another one. And then thus the Batman Devo hell because... I was thinking about this last night. I was like, why didn't, and it's not like they didn't try. I mean, Karelko and Canon Films tried to make Super or Spider-Man, right? Mm-hmm. But think about this, Matt. I mean, DC Comics is, in 1978, early 80s, is 40-ish years old. Marvel and Spider-Man and the X-Men, they're like 22 20. years old. Mm-hmm. It's still young for them, right? Yeah. I, I think we still don't quite know like what that world looks like or what it could be. Yeah. And I feel like they needed another, like, okay, let's, if we can see Batman, like, maybe we can see what, like, a Marvel thing could look like. And by the time Batman came out, Marvel was bankrupt as could be, right? Yeah. <laughs> so it just didn't work. But, yeah, to just, yeah, paving, paving the ground for these guys. Three Oscar noms for editing, music, and sound. A special achievement Oscar for best visual effects. And I told you on the phone about this three-hour and eight-minute international cut. I've never seen it. I probably need to see it, but... Uh, that's a salt kind thing. Donner had next to nothing to do with that. And then two, two more notes. Uh, this film was hugely influential on one, Mr. Christopher Nolan, and he used it in his pitch on his revival of Batman with Batman begins. He was like, he talked about Donner and 78 Superman a lot. So I think he gets it too, right? Yeah. (laughs) He might get it. (laughs) So so some of the guys, these guys pick up on the right lessons of what you're going to borrow from the past from, right? Yeah. Uh, and then finally, I don't know if you read it, but uh, they did do a Superman 78 revival comic, which is set in this universe. So everyone looks like Reeve and Kidder and Hackman. And I think they introduced Brainiac in that. It's a limited run. Mm. Um, I haven't read it, but I do have Batman 89 when they, they did it with Batman. Oh, and cool. Keaton and Pfeiffer and Billy D. Williams as Two-Face. Sweet. Um, but they did do a Superman one. I, d- I need to get my hands on that. Yeah. But how are you going to rate and grade? Oh, no, hang on a second. Back up. Favorite tasting note, scene sequence of Superman. Well, um, that's tough because favorite tasting note and oh my God could be really close on this one. I'll I'll, I'll separate them a bit. Mm -hmm. I think that, and there's so many, I'm going to just go with this one. That opening bit where Zod and Ursa and whatever the hell the other guy's name is, are picked up into that tumbling <laughs> piece of mirror and just sent off. I remember as a kid seeing that thinking like, oh my gosh, what a terrible way to be imprisoned. And Terrence Stamp for being a rather small individual stature wise was so loud in his, you will kneel before Zod. Mm-hmm. I was kind of relieved when they put him in that glass and sent him off because he was a little terrifying. Yeah, I don't want to deal with that guy yet. Yeah, no, I don't want to do I, I'm not ready to do that yet. It's pretty fun to watch, you know, as the pitcher flies past the screen, Ursa mm-hmm. is saying, forgive me. Mm-hmm. She wants out instantly. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> this is awful. Yep. Uh, pretty good, pretty good. Uh, mine's going to be this montage of superheroing uh, to fix the San Andreas fault. I think it's great. Him being the railroad track for the Amtrak to go over him is awesome. Uh, he he flies in to, to save like an electrical plant because he can touch electricity without being killed. It's all really good. It's scored well. It's acted well. He saves Jimmy, and then he's right off to save the Hoover Dam. Like 
hey, Superman actually saving things? Mm-hmm. Like, you're not just letting your Metropolis just get decimated by the world engine? The world engine. Where the fuck's the Codex? Dude, that movie. <laughs> one day we'll do it. And it's not going to be pleasant, people. I'm yeah. telling you. I'm telling you. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay, what is the... Oh, my God! Moment of Superman. The scream for me. Still, Lois's death scream. Yeah. Still. Chilling for you, right? Yeah. Uh, I think I'm going to go with the, the death of... Pa Kent, Jonathan Kent, like it's just. I think it's it's really powerful the way it's done, but it's just it happens like up like him clutching that arm is just like oh yikes! Like mm-hmm. this guy's dying instantly. He and he realizes it too. Like with him saying, "Oh no, I know I'm having a heart attack." Oh no, can't stop it. Nothing can stop it. And the realization of that of his wife and then his his son, it's really sad. I mean, mm-hmm. it's just and we go from that into this. But it's it's a marker in the hero's journey, right? It's yep. that's an important piece that need. It's the Uncle Benning of this film, right? Well said. Yeah. Who's the master distiller on Superman? There's a lot of ways we could go on this, mm-hmm. so I'm going to pick Christopher Reeve. I think for the trouble that we talked about forecasting what his career was post Superman, I'd like to believe that in his heart he said it was all worth it. Yeah. Because it's so good, and it did get he did get four films out of it, so it wasn't like he didn't get anything out of it. Um, I'm going to go there. There's a lot of other options, but I'm going to go there. It's a good one. I mean, we've sang the praises of plenty of Richard Donner, right? Yeah. I mean, maybe a, a little bit better of a director than we gave him credit for when we did The Omen a few years ago. Yeah. But he's really in control of a huge production here. But I can't just play you four sound clips and then just not go with John Williams because this is John Williams' best score of his entire career. It's amazing. Go get it on vinyl, go get it on CD, listen to it on Spotify, wherever you need to, and just listen to someone just take over a movie with tone and feel and music. It's awesome. I just, I've always loved it. Every time I watch this film, I love the score a little bit more. Like I said, E.T.'s close. Empire Strikes Back is really close as well, but it's Superman the movie for me. Yeah, good. How are you going to rate and grade Superman 78? We have Rocket, Well Call, Single Barrel, and Top Shelf. Where are you going this week? Top shelf. If I was going to rank all of the superhero films 1 to 10, I think this, and that's a lot in the last 10 years, by the way, I think this probably still makes it into the top 10, which is saying something because they didn't have the technology and they didn't have the knowledge on how to make them that they have today. Mm -hmm. Solid performances, simple story, that doesn't actually have a lot of action in it. Uh, a few few moments. Five or six big action bits, but mostly it's character-driven. Yeah. Uh, really, really strong performances by everybody. Um, and it kind of feels like these people enjoyed making this film. Mm-hmm. And I think you can feel that in this first one. Yeah. Yeah, so that's it for me. Yeah. It's up there. Yeah. Top shelf with a bullet for mm-hmm. me. One of my favorite films of all time. Uh, I think maybe only the Nolan Batman films, Batman 89 for personal reasons, and Spider-Man 2, I think, are in front of this one for me. Uh, Yeah, this is a hugely important film, not only for this genre that you and I love to talk about uh, on and off mic, right? Yeah. Uh, But... Uh, it's huge, and it's coming out in an era where we're figuring out the blockbuster. Now we're tapping into superheroes. Is it a viable option for us? Oh, man, wow. Yeah. 
Uh, and it's an enjoyable, it's well-made, it's well-executed, the acting. Like, it's hard not to pick Reeves as being, like, it, he, he is and will always be. I don't care who they put in front of the camera. I mean, it's Reeves at the top of that mountain for me. Like, it's, he embodies not only the character, but the look, the mannerisms, the and maybe that's why you go get a Juilliard-trained actor to play this character who we've never, uh, we've never seen him before. This yeah. is a great breakthrough for him. Uh, yeah, top shelf, hugely important. Yeah, I can't sing its praises higher. It gets better in each rewatch. Hell, I might even like that three hour and eight minute version of the movie. Yeah, because see what we never saw that made it into that. I wonder if there's a scene in there of them going to Addis Ababa to steal the the kryptonite. I, yeah, there might be actually. Yeah, just little moments like that. But uh, let's wrap this up with our nightcap. Dude, Williams is going hard. <laughs> love it, man. I just love it. Big splashy question tonight for a big splashy film. Right on the nose as you can be. Top three Richard Donner films. Yeah. Three, three, two, two, one, one. Excellent. Uh, number three for me, uh, Lethal Weapon. Uh, mm. And I can't believe it's a film we haven't done on this show. I mean, are, are we in, are, we could definitely squeeze in a, a spec, you know, buddy cop film, right? Oh, yeah. But it's fantastic. That first, and I've, I've watched it a couple times in the last couple of years. Mel Gibson and Danny Glover are so good together. Richard Donner obviously knows how to direct action. And then you couple that with a very on-the-nose Shane Black screenplay. Yep. You got a recipe for a lot of success, and it's a very watch. I like Lethal Weapon 2 a lot. 3 is kind of where I start to check out, and then 4 is fairly missable. I never watched that show uh, that they did on Fox, but that first one, it's going to get a great rating for me one day. Okay, I love that one. <laughs> yeah. You just said my number 3 there. Okay. That's Lethal Weapon 2. Mm. Uh, really enjoy that film. Uh, I like the buddy cop trope a lot, and I like both of those actors a lot. So that's my number three. Hey, I've got diplomatic immunity. It's just been revoked. Yeah, <laughs> so awesome. It's really good. You get Joe Pesci in the fold in there, so it gets a little silly, but they ki- spoiler alert, they kill off Gibson's girlfriend in the middle of that film. Yeah. A very likable character. Yeah. Good choice. Uh, number two for me, episode we've done on the show, it is The Omen. Uh, it's a fantastic little film, uh, very sinister and malicious. Gregory Peck's really good in that. Go listen to that episode because I think I'd probably give it a top shelf rating because I just, I really like that movie. Uh, it's kind of blockbuster, you know, trying to do it another version of The Exorcist. And I think they succeed for the most part. My number two as well. Excellent. The Omen bit number two for both of us. Here it is. The big one, number one. Wait, oh. we break our own. Would it be this film if it was? Oh, one? this is number one without a doubt. Okay, so right. Yeah. Uh, number one for me, uh, personal choice. It's a film I revisit constantly. I love it. I love its innocence. I love its swashbuckliness. It's the Goonies. Uh, him teaming up with Spielberg and Chris Columbus was kind of a recipe for success. And what I love most about that film, and I actually just watched it like three weeks ago, is that that's just it's a film that feels like you and your buddy just like riding your bikes in the middle of summer, and you got into an adventure. And in this film, it's just like a pirate treasure. 
and you're like trying to like ward off these like mob people like or these like escaped convicts right yeah. there's something fun about it it's it, there's a lot of really great character like pieces young josh brought young everybody in that thing right yeah. uh it's fun uh in a way that only 1985 could provide the goonies would never get made today and it's a shame because that's just a fun enjoyable good time at the movies and i think we're missing out on a lot of that top gun maverick got that right last summer not every movie needs to just be homework and just so intense mm-hmm. all the time. There's a time and a place for that, but man, the Goonies was just, it was a different time. It was a different time. You're right. It's way past time for that to show up again. Mm-hmm. That was a staple of every summer. Some good, some better, but that was always a staple. Mm-hmm. And it, you're right. It's way, way, way past time. And I think there's even evidence that it'd be successful because that's to a certain degree, Stranger Things. Oh yeah. Stranger Things uh, takes a lot from the Goonies model, but in like a more like, force type of way yeah. it seems so effortless in in the yeah. goonies that little collective working together i just it's it's it's, it's hard to replicate Good. maybe there's a reason they haven't done it again right Good. yeah maybe right yeah, yeah. I, know, I know you're not the biggest fan of that particular show right? i'm not but i can see the value that it had in staples of summer like yeah again that's a whole different that that's a a, a mini show what happened to summer yeah um but not tonight Number one for me, Lethal Weapon. I love it. Yeah. It's uh, the epitome of buddy cop movie. Mm-hmm. It is the best. I'll argue Seven is a better film, but Seven doesn't get made if it doesn't play with what Lethal Weapon set the ground for. Kind of a ridiculous villain, like Mr. Joshua could be better. No, I love Mr. Joshua. <laughs> but even is the absurdity with that character still kind of works in that. Um, you know... Mel Gibson, for all of his perceived sins, in my book, is still a really awesome guy. And if you dig into it, you can still see that he's still got his his wheels on the tracks, and I think still carrying on fairly well. But, God, he's fucking good in that film. Yeah. And Danny Glover plays in a role that kind of you feel like should be reversed, mm-hmm. straight-laced, and kind of the straight man. Just feels like it should be the other way, maybe because of Beverly Hills Cop and Eddie Murphy. But yeah. again, that movie doesn't get made if it's not for Lethal Weapon. Mm-hmm. I love Lethal Weapon. Well, no, Beverly Hills Cop came preceded. up before it preceded it. Yeah, that's a great film as well. I love Lethal Weapon. Yeah, I do too. Uh, maybe that's the cast: Lethal Weapon One, Beverly Hills Cop, and Lethal Weapon Two. Yeah, or I'm sure we could find like another like buddyish cop movie to tap into, like another franchise or just like another one. Tango and Cash. Oh my God! Yes, there you go. Because that's kind of not a good movie nope. in, in a. Good, bad movie kind of way. Like, it's cheesy as hell. Oh, there you go. Tequila you, Sunrise. You figured it out. No, Tango and Cash first. Okay. Yeah, that, that's good stuff. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Lead the Weapon is just is just, is just great. Uh, him doing, like, the Three Stooges routine mm-hmm. and then also putting a gun in his mouth in the next scene. Yeah. Mr. Joshua. And yeah, him getting electrocuted, like, all strung up like that. Yeah, that's good. Lethal Weapon's good stuff. Like, that's good Chris, Christmas time stuff. How come Lethal Weapon isn't in our Christmas movie rotations, everybody? Die Hard, of course, obviously, right? But yeah, Lethal right. Weapon belongs in it's there. A, it's a Christmas film. So uh, let's tease out the future real quickly, and then we'll get to next week. Because you wanted to ask me, and I think you, were, you, you knew where you were going with this, which was, did they film two movies at the same time? Was the production troubled at all? So on top of this just being like a crazy road to get to with this film, Donner and the Salkinds and Pierre Spangler fought tooth and nail. It sounds like daily. Like yeah. they were constantly telling him you were over budget and behind schedule when 
I don't think he really was, but that's just the type of businessmen they were. They brought in Richard Lester as like a mediator to like kind of be the go-between between Donner and the producers. And to Richard Lester's credit, he went to Donner and was like, look, these guys screwed me. I'm I'm just here because they owe me money from these three Musketeers movies mm-hmm. we did. Uh, so uh, I'm here if you want me to be here. If you don't want me in your way, just tell me and I'll get out. So I'm this, just cashing a check, buddy. Yeah, this isn't Richard Lester's fault. This is the Salkind's fault. Donner films 75% of the sequel and then gets fired by these guys yep. or walks. Probably a little bit of both, right? A little bit of both, yeah. So what are you going to do with your already filmed sequel that's highly anticipated now that you're a hit? You got to finish it somehow, and you don't have your original director, so you're going to bring Lester in because you owe him one. But how are you going to fix all that? So we're going to do a cool thing in two weeks. Uh, you're going to watch Superman 2, the theatrical cut, the version we know and have watched a a billion times over on HBO, right? Yeah. And I'm going to go ahead and watch Superman 2, the Richard Donner cut, because before the Snyder cut, Donner actually got to go back and re-edit his film to his original Mank script. And I got to tell you, in in a lot of places it's similar, and in a lot of places it's a totally different film. So... Mm. This is a first for Rice Smile Films where we're going to watch two versions two of viewings. the same movie. Yeah. And I think we're in for a lot of surprises and twists and turns. So buckle up for that episode. On top of just being a really amazing story. And this is going to be a very heavy production. That'll be a heavy production episode. Mm-hmm. There's a lot to talk about and there's some good and some bad. So, I mean, the normal sort of garden variety stuff we get into, but the production story there is absolutely bonkers. Yeah, to be a fly on the wall, right? Yeah. But in between all that, it came out Friday. We're going to give you a week to see it. And then next week, our episode, we're going to wrap up our time with the Guardians and Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. You've seen it. We saw it today. I'm going to see it uh, here rather shortly. Uh, But as you alluded to, we have a lot to talk about next week. Next week is going to be a very, very interesting show. Mm -hmm. Very interesting show. In between, we've kind of revisited the other prior entries in the Guardians verse, which are other films I would also love to talk about in the future, right? Yeah. But yeah, we'll tackle part three. I think it's the start of the summer movie season. It's a big film coming out. And hey, Marvel, the hell are those guys doing over there? Let's let's talk about it, right? Sooner or later, they're going to hit one, right? This has got to be it. Yeah. So we'll see. Yep. Uh, but until then, check us out on any of the podcasting platforms, Apple Podcasts, Podbean, Spotify, Stitcher. Uh, check us out uh, at ricemellproductions at gmail.com. Do you love Superman as much as we do, or do you think it's pretty overrated? Mm. How is that? Possible? I don't know. Maybe I don't want to talk to you. Exactly. You're not changing my mind, people. But <laughs> until then, I got to get going. Matt, uh, I'm due for a vacation. I'm down to go visit Otisburg. What do you say? As long as they have a really fancy pink underwear museum. Okay. Did you tell about these Tommy Johns that I have on? Yeah, you did. With uh, Spider-Man's on there somewhere. Yeah. Uh, we'll see you all next week. Have a good week, everybody. We'll see you in the dark. Thank you for listening to Rye Smile Films. Be sure to subscribe to us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Podbean, Stitcher, TuneIn, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And be sure to leave us a rating and a review while you're there, it really helps out the show. And for Rye Smile Films merchandise, go to tpublic.com. Superman is property of Warner Brothers Pictures and DC Comics, and no copyright infringement is intended. Until next time, cheers. Cheers.
Gentlemen, is that man all right? Yeah! 